Well, hello. Welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. As always, I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and I am joined by... Catherine! My sister, and we are here to talk about a cinematic near-miss, right? Another project that just quite didn't make it. In this case, 2008, Wachowski-directed... Speed Racer, an adaptation of the 1960s anime, uh, one of the first anime to find significant success here in the United States, uh, along with Astro Boy and a few others, but um, certainly a iconic property and one that had been languishing in development hell in Hollywood for years. The Wachowski stepped in after The Matrix and made it a reality, but to what end, right? And that's the question we will be tackling tonight, but... Uh, before we get into it, what have you been watching, Kate? I watched the second season of Channel Zero, finally. Um, I had mentioned that I'm digging into that series. Um, this one was No End House. And mm-hmm. I was sold because John Carroll Lynch plays uh, the father in it, and I absolutely love him. Um, it was really, it was excellent. I was... Surprised. I kind of expected, you know, after a really successful first season for it to just immediately get stupid, but it not only picked a really good source, um, No End House is a great piece of writing, um, mm-hmm. but it kind of took it in fun directions. I really liked what they did with it. Nice. Yeah, I've, I've, I don't know if I've finished it. I know I watched a big chunk of it and enjoyed what I saw, and I don't remember why I might have bounced off of it. I actually, actually, no. Um, I was watching it on Sci-Fi's free streaming service, and it, they took it down before I could finish it. <laughs> and then I just never sought it out. I, that's, that's right. Uh, I was able to watch the entire first season and get through that, but then by the time I was finishing up the second season, they had, had good old pulled it city. down off their streams. Yep, good old Sci-Fi. Right. You can always count on them to not let you watch the stuff that their channel produces. <laughs> it's their greatest skill really is preventing people from seeing their original content it is. it's pretty great um well i had a, a pretty uneventful week in terms of media just trying to catch up with a few things but um primarily i finished uh, reading the harry potter series with my daughter this week and uh we sort of committed to get through the the last set of movies uh, deathly hollows part one and two this weekend and so that's really probably the most extensive thing that I watched this week and it was kind of fun because I hadn't really watched them since the theaters I had bought the blu-rays years ago on clearance or closeout or something and so I always had them but never really felt the need to revisit the last film you know it's a fairly in terms of the ending of an epic series the the final book of the harry potter series while it has its twists and reveals is a pretty straightforward story you know i never really struggled with understanding it or remembering it or anything like that and and so it was kind of nice to sit down and and revisit it again uh especially with my my daughter's eyes it was sort of funny she you know whenever they had made a significant change she'd be like that's not how it was because we just finished the book literally two days ago and and she'd be like that's not what they did and i'm like you know it's her first taste of uh I, the first one i remember was uh, jurassic park going to see jurassic park in the theater and i loved the book 
and you know the movie is not the book it's the same basic it's better than the book right i think i I think it it makes some smart choices with the book uh it keeps ian malcolm alive without any weird histrionics which is a a good choice on the film's part uh because then when they brought him back for the sequel book they just had to invent some dumb garbage for why he didn't get killed by all the comsignathas (laughs) but uh yeah, so it, it was just kind of funny watching her deal with, you know, adaptation in that way and, and really noticing perhaps for the first time their desire to make different choices. But um, but a good series. Like, I think it really, you know, uh, the last couple of films directed by David Yates are generally looked down upon. I mean, I still think the best one, film in the Harry Potter series is Prisoner of Azkaban, the, the Alfonso Cuarón directed one oh, it, it I love really him so much it's it's the best one in the series in terms of the choices that it does make with the adaptation the the way that it strips the story down focuses on the characters um and then it completely changed the world of harry potter you know we'd come off the two chris columbus films which were very warm and very comfortable very family friendly which is sort of where we're going to be talking about tonight with speed racer you know, films that look like family-friendly films. And then Koran was forced to, not forced, but he made the decision to to age up, to move forward, right? And say, oh, this isn't going to work, right? They're, they're teenagers now, right? They're 14, 15 years old. You can't, you know, dress them up in their nice pretty robes and mat their hair down and, and hope that everything's going to be fine and, and uh, really establish the rest of the series in terms of its visual presentation. And and I, I just still think it's the, the best one in the series. But, um, you know, Yates gets a lot of uh, a lot of crap for the last couple of them because they're kind of bland. And they are. I mean, they, you know, they, they lack a joie de vivre, if we're going to be, you know, really artsy-fartsy about it. They're, they're workmanlike in their production, but they kind of had to be given the schedule that they needed to release them on. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe was not getting any younger. My wife, the first time he he took his shirt off because uh, there's a point where they get wet and they change clothes, and she's like, "Well, they certainly certainly were trying to make him look 17, were they?" He's like, "He's got more chest hair than you do." Yeah, at a certain point, that's just that's not going to work anymore. Yeah, but so I mean, I, you could tell them racing to to beat the clock, so to speak. I saw most of the Harry Potter movies. I think I skipped maybe the last three, maybe the a last lot of people. Four. I think my favorite is my per. You know, I, I think the third is the best one. I think the one that I find the most watchable is uh, Order of the Phoenix, the fifth film. I, I like the story of that book. It's the one where they like hear the prophecy for the first time. It's got a nice kind of ominous. It's a pretty straightforward MacGuffin chase. You know, they've got to get into the Ministry of Magic and find the prophecy and all this stuff. Like it's it's just very simple and flows really well. It's it's fairly short. You know, it's not one of the longer ones, but. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a cool series. Uh, I know it's probably going to be some like premium HBO max thing at some point. They're going to do like 150 hours to retell that story or something crazy. I, I just know it's coming down the pike at some point. They're going to probably gonna give it another five, six years, a full generation in between release schedules and, and then just hit us again. Harry Potter part two. I'm not sure we're going to get the rest of those fantastic beast movies. <laughs> i'm really not sure about that but maybe that's for the best we'll see it's been fun watching that boat sink (laughs) Uh, unfortunately i just i hope my daughter by the time my daughter's ready to to really delve into 
social media and the internet, Twitter is dead, and J.K. Rowling no longer has an active account. Maybe none of us will have active accounts, and the world will be a much better place. We'll all be using we'll the see. TikTok. <laughs> Just feeding information to the Chinese <laughs> government. It's going to be great. It's all that's going to matter soon. <laughs> well, cool. Uh, all right. Well, let's let's delve into this monster, this beast of a film, and a beast it is. Uh, apart from the runtime, which is two hours and fifteen minutes, uh, this is is a big swing on the part of the Wachowskis, uh, Ron Silver, their longtime producers, produced pretty much everything they've ever done, uh, or Joel Silver, excuse me, and uh, a big swing for Warner Brothers, who of course had banked on the Wachowskis with a, a little film. You may have heard of it called the matrix mm. and uh and it paid off big like real big and um that may have been why they got to make this very strange little project that is not so little and uh so let's let's talk about some some bona fides real quick um so this movie had a 120 million dollar budget uh so in 2008 money that's decent right they're definitely in the Transformers, Michael Bay, Blockbuster, Summer Territory here. Um, and it's total worldwide box office, not just U.S. box office, worldwide, everywhere that it was released, was $93.9 million, $94 million. So, uh, and, you know, going back and looking through marketing materials and things like that, uh, they had a huge marketing spend for this movie. They spent a lot of money marketing well, it to people. It, it had been like the, it was 40 years of Speed Racer, right? Uh, yes, it came out pretty close. I think Speed Racer debuted in the States in 67-ish. So it was like right in that that ballpark of like, hey, Speed Racer is is a, a multi-generational institution. And and they, they leaned hard into it. Tons and tons of licensing and marketing, which, as I'm sure we'll talk about, given the tone of the film, which is sort of staunchly anti-corporate. It's amazing how corporatized this project was. The um, product placement in the film was a little weird, given its message, you know? Yeah. See the, yeah, the Yokohama tires as they're right. fighting the man in their Mach Five. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little it's a little disingenuous. Um, the realities of movie making, some might say, but it, it certainly comes across a little weird. Um, so it was a big swing. Uh, it's considered one of the most significant box office failures in history. Um, so it is it is on an infamous list. Of, of huge, huge flops um, because it didn't even really do well in its in the, the Japanese market where you would kind of expect a movie based on this iconic property would be a slam dunk. That's and, maybe because uh, they didn't have a lot of Japanese people in it. Uh, yeah, and, mo- and that would have helped. The, the vast majority <laughs> of them are, are villains in the film or, or at least of, of nebulous quality. So, uh, so yeah, um, you know, in, in terms of the the filmmakers, uh, again, if it's if you, if you don't know the name, uh, the Wachowskis, as we said, were the uh, directors of the Matrix films, uh, of which there is really one good one and then two kind of okay mediocre ones. I've come around a little bit on Reloaded. Um, I, I kind of I get what that movie is throwing down and what it's trying to do. There's still parts of it I find unwatchable. Uh, anything having to do with Zion is is unwatchable in that film. It just 
is, is not at all what I hoped for. Um, and, and that's okay. It doesn't have to be what I hoped for to be good, but it was not what I hoped for and it was not good. <laughs> and so I, I, I still struggle with those scenes. There are parts of it that are fine, you know, the, but this, this to reverse engineer Morpheus as this sort of crazed religious leader just didn't work for me at all. Like he was this fringe guy. Uh, you never get any of that from the first film, even an inkling of it. And then for that to be a sort of central conceit that's just accepted when the second film starts, it was really jarring. And, and well, again, we could get into a lot of different the stuff. The first but. film spent a lot of time making sure that being the one was really cool. And then the other mm -hmm. two films made sure to let you know it is not that cool to be the one. It's really not that cool. And uh, everything else is just kind of <laughs> crap. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, but you so, want to be the um, one? No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, you really don't. It's it's kind of a bad deal. Probably consider another line of work. But so the the Matrix was, and you know, we could we could probably do an episode on the Matrix, even though it was this colossal success. But um, the Matrix was a, a, a watershed moment in film for action films for blockbusters, uh, which the blockbuster had languished in the nineties. Um, you know, it certainly didn't go away. We had our Independence Day, we had Twister, we had Mission Impossible. You know, there were still big summer blockbusters, but a lot of those, you know, big summer blockbusters in the 90s have not moved forward in time, right? They have not, you know, nobody's like clamoring for Twister these days, right? It was well, like, oh, I man, am. Bring me back that Bill Paxton and Twister, right? And, uh, Bill I'm more Paxton than happy and to. Philip Seymour Hoffman together at Philip last? Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, Helen Hunt, you know, right off a of stint on Mad About You. Um, you know, but it's, it's one of those things that, you know, 1999 in general, uh, and, and their you know, entire podcast devoted to just breaking down the year in movies that was 1999, but the matrix was this, uh, explosion and the Wachowskis at, after that basically had their run of Hollywood. They could do whatever they wanted. Nobody was going to tell them no. And, uh, so they did a couple of, um, producing projects. They produced V for Vendetta, which is a film that I find problematic. They, they, some reports say that they basically shadow directed it um, because the guy that is given the director credit was their, you know, one of their ADs on uh, the Matrix films. And so a lot of people think that they were basically just directing by proxy, which is possible. I, I don't necessarily agree with that. Just the, the end result of V for Vendetta, I think, would sort of speak to them not being fully in control. But uh, this was their first movie post-Matrix, right? And so that was a huge part of the marketing as well. I, I remember this film. I was excited for this film, not only for the Wachowski connection, but I've always enjoyed Speed Racer. Um, as an anime, it's it's very basic. I, I don't think there's, you know, watching it today, I think would be a sort of infuriating process for a lot of people. It's been rebooted several times to very poor results, but... You know, the original has some some charm to it even still. But at its core, it is a guy who races a car against people who are bad. I mean, it is really simple. It's a com not a complicated idea. And uh, so this film, as we'd said, it sort of languished in development hell. It had been floating around Hollywood since the early 90s. And it never gotten off the ground. Originally, it was seen as a potential action blockbuster property. And that never really went anywhere or developed. Uh, when the Wachowskis came in, they decided to reapproach the film as uh, a family movie, right? A movie intended to be 
consumed by and enjoyed by a, a family audience, right? So this film actually carries a PG rating, which is remarkably difficult to obtain now. Uh, PG ratings in movies are super tough to get. Um, it's not impossible, you know, but I mean, even we've even had Pixar movies that have pushed the boundaries of PG. So um, this is a, a PG film. And, uh, and it shows, right? I mean, I, I think there's opportunities for in, incredible uh, violence in this movie, and it, it sort of always sidesteps that in some fairly creative and fun ways. But um, the Wachowskis' decision to turn this into a family film, many people at the time saw as a mistake, um, that it should have been a more adult property. And a lot of its core audience probably felt that way too, right? The, the 30- and 40-year-old men who remembered Speed Racer fondly and wanted to see that updated for the modern era. So they may have uh, not enjoyed that aspect of it either. Um, but let's get into the failure a little bit. So the, the financial failure is a huge component uh, of why this movie is now, you know, sort of looked back on as a, a colossal disaster, not only for the Wachowskis, who didn't work a ton after this, um, or at least for a couple of years, but also... Um, for the studio, right? Warner Brothers took a huge bath on this. So our uh, good friends at Rotten Tomato, they placed this at a 40% on the tomato meter with around 200 reviews. And the audience score is quite a bit higher. We're at 60%. So a lot of the films we've been watching, like Dread, have a kind of parity between the you know, sort of critic score and the audience score. This one, there is a gulf. And a lot of this has to do... Uh, there, you know, if you, if you pop on over to the YouTubes, uh, there are a large number of people on YouTube who are, are now looking back on Speed Racer and saying, oh, wait, actually, this movie's a masterpiece. Um, and, and I'm going to go ahead and say that I always felt that it was. It's flawed, but I think that this movie does a lot of really incredible things really, really well, but... We'll get into that. But so the, the critical consensus on this movie has has turned in, I'd say, the last four years. Um, pretty hard to where a lot of people are like, you know, we treated that movie too badly. Um, and and so we'll, we'll have the opportunity to, to look at that. Uh, the Metascore is, is very close to that. It's 37 on Metacritic, and the user score is, in, is almost 8. So again, huge gulf between you know, critical response and now user response many of those user responses coming within the last four or five years. So some review phrases, and you're going to hear a lot of similarities here. Uh, pretty much, apart from a couple of things that we'll hit, they all had the same complaints. Pretty much every negative review. Uh, so I'll run through these real quick. Feel free to comment if you uh, have some thoughts. I think I probably will. Uh, so first, Peter Bradshaw and The Guardian. Uh, you have to be 12 to like it. And I have to say there is little or nothing here to remind us why we were all quite so excited about The Matrix. Um, many reviews said that this film was bad simply because it was a letdown from The Matrix. Um, which I get, right? You go in with those expectations. That's what they gave us before. What are they going to give us this time? And one thing I will say about the Wachowskis that I do sort of respect is that they have never allowed themselves to fall into familiar territory, 
they're always trying to do different things, uh, at least since the Matrix. They, you can tell they've sort of actively worked against becoming guys who make movies like the Matrix, right? Um, you know, people who make action films, even though their films often involve action. Um, and I, I think that that is, is a very specific choice on their part. But a lot of people were very let down by this film versus what we knew from the Wachowskis in the Matrix films. Um, Tom Charity from CNN, 12-year-old boys should be wowed, but for the rest of us, it will depend on your appetite for eye, can eye candy. I would say a good 20% of the reviews that I read attributed the viewership of this film to either 10 or 12-year-olds, specifically those two ages. That's weird. Uh, 12, 12 being the most common. 12 was mentioned over and over again. Oh, 12-year-olds will love it. Um, you know, and it, again, as, as a family film, I guess that's kind of like the middle target area, right? Like that's the, the group. But I don't know. It seems odd to hate on a film for appealing to a younger audience. Um, I don't think the movie made any bones about being for a younger audience. I mean, it's rated PG. It was marketed to young kids. Um, so being mad about that, I don't really understand. Um, so here's another one. Peter Travers from Rolling Stone. Even the target audience of 10-year-olds might get Jimmy Legs sitting for a punishing 135 minutes as the Wachowski brothers projectile vomit their cotton candy dreams all over the big screen. So Peter Travers always can always count on him to turn a phrase. But uh, we'll, we'll come back to that one Um Cotton candy dreams vomit all over the screen. That's very specific. Yeah. Um, Travers is not a fan. Uh, Claudia Puig, again, frequent uh, review poll because she always has uh, her finger on the pulse, or at least she did. She's no longer the reviewer at USA Today, but she was. Uh, for a movie about velocity, the excitement factor is low and the races feel like a drag. Um, one of the largest complaints universally, even if you go read the ones that are talking about like being for 10 and 12 year olds is that the movie was too long. I agree. And, uh, and as a result, it's, it's dull. And, and I think it's a fair consideration if you really are trying to get a family market. I mean, there's a reason why Pixar movies and you know, your Disney animated fair, they don't push much past 110 minutes, maybe two hours. Right. I think the most recent Aladdin remake, which ugh, whatever, uh, was like right at two hours. You know, so I, I think people understand that it's the it's the Hitchcock rule, right? You know, you can only really have a film be as long as the sustained ability of the human bladder. And with kids, that's doubly an issue. Um, so this one, and and this is a little bit more positive, but still, this is uh, Stephen Witte from the Newark Star Ledger. Speed Racer is brilliantly photographed and edited. It's told in a literally visionary style, full of innovation and breathtaking risk. But when it comes to the story, it's running on empty. Uh, so the other sort of major complaint that I pulled from a lot of the reviews, and even some of the positive reviews, they felt that the plot was somewhat incoherent. Um, and I think this has more to do with how they choose to structure the plot, especially in the first act, than really the story itself. Because I think the story of Speed Racer is very simple. Um, it's, it's 
three races and a win. Like, I mean, it's not a complicated story. But the first act does some very, very interesting things with flashback and narrative structure right out of the gate that uh, are pretty bold, especially for a film aimed at kids. Uh, I know in my rewatch, I watched it with the family and, and my, uh, my son struggled a bit. Uh, he's, he's eight, um, but he struggled a bit with understanding uh, the race at Thunderhead and, and sort of who speed was racing against and what was going on there. So we had to do a bit of explaining, but again, he's eight. So the target market is obviously 12. So, you know, he's doing okay. Uh, at least according to Peter Travers. Uh, and then finally, uh, Amy Biancoli from the Houston Chronicle. It gave me a headache, a stomach ache, and a less defined unease that comes from witnessing a major change in the zeitgeist. Because the zeitgeist, judging from this movie, now embraces rattle-headed visual delirium at all costs. And so that is the other part of this. You know, Travers mentions it a bit in his review, is that this film is, is sort of hyperkinetic in the extreme. Um, its color palette is saturated. Its movement is sometimes dizzying and insane. Um, it's it's a it can be a challenging film to watch, uh, especially your first time through. But um, again, is that the point? Is that what they were going for? I guess that's what we need to find out. Uh, so the common problems, just to make sure that we've got them sort of clearly stated, uh, it's visually oversaturated and hyperfrenetic in its approach. It wants to be fast, but instead feels slow and dull. It has a hacky and overcomplicated plot. Uh, it is too long. And it is anti-corporate in its message, but utterly corporate in its execution. Right, Which I did see a few people complaining about, even though that is... Um, I feel like that's a very kind of minor concern. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it, again, it's the nature of big budget filmmaking. Uh, they all do it, right? It's why every Marvel franchise, you know, Captain America, you only see Chevy cars. In, in Thor movies, you only see Acuras, right? It's like they all do it. Um, it's it's part of big studio f filmmaking at this point is your your slow and careful placement of product so that you can can lower the the initial you know cost of your film by subsidizing with advertising built into the process and I, you know i don't agree with it I, I would rather see film that doesn't have that in it but at this point for the last 20 years it has been a de facto part of making large films um and most of these studio relationships with these advertisers are embedded and and basically it's just there from the beginning uh the wachowskis have always seemed to be able to push back against that um, but really, this is kind of their last major studio movie. Uh, Cloud Atlas was primarily independently financed. It was released by a studio, but they paid for it themselves. It had a very strange co-directing arrangement with Tom Tyquer from uh, of Run Lola Run fame. Um, you know, so it it and then uh, Jupiter Ascending was very much the same. They kind of financed it on their own did a, a major studio for distribution, but didn't have a ton of backing. Uh, so this is kind of like their last experience with what we would consider the traditional sort of Hollywood studio system. They're still in it. Uh, obviously, they're back in it now with The Matrix 4 in whatever capacity they're back in bed with, with Warner Brothers because they own the property. But I think this left a bad taste in their mouths. I think the realities of this film and its, its colossal failure you know, stung 
and and probably pushed them away from Hollywood for you know, about 10 years. Or as some might like to say, Hollywood jail, right? They were placed in Hollywood jail for their failure, which uh, happens all too often as well. But so let's let's delve in. Um, this is a, a long movie, so we're we're going to try and move swiftly through it. But as we mentioned, I, I think it's worth spending a bit of time talking about the opening of this film. Um, and and by opening, I mean right away. Uh, one of the things I, I love about the start of Speed Racer is that it opens with the, I guess you could say prismatic, sort of almost like a color test that you would see um, fairly common in, in Japanese television. They're obviously trying to, invo to evoke that late 60s, 1970s, um, you know, film opening. It's just, just color and bright. Quentin Tarantino does the same thing. You know, he uses his uh, Saturday matinee backgrounds to kick off his movies. He, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has a few call-outs to those. And it feels sort of along those lines, but, you know, the, the sort of prismatic opening on the Warner Brothers Pictures logo and then the push into um, the sort of red and yellow that are going to define sort of the, the Speed Racer family colors, if you will. All of that, it has this kaleidoscopic feel to it. And you know, I think it's intentional. Like I, a piece of me, well, the matrix. Okay. Well, well, it's not the first time we're going to reference it, but let's, let's jump right in. Uh, the matrix of course opens with the scroll of the matrix text at now the first time you see the matrix, you don't know what that text is, right? It's just green characters, some Japanese kanji, um, some numbers, you know, flowing down the screen and then everything sort of resolves into that in many ways that is a bridge into the world of the matrix, right? The, the Wachowskis are literally saying like, we are pulling you inside our world and the world that we're pulling you inside is not like yours. You may think it is, you may feel like it is, but it's a very different place. And I kind of get the feeling they're doing the same thing with this sort of kaleidoscope opening that they're trying to show you that, you know, you're, you're no longer looking at the world through a regular lens. You're looking at it through something refracted. Um, maybe as a subtle clue that nothing you're about to see is real. Because <laughs> it, it isn't, right? I mean, 90, you know, not 90%, but like 70% of this movie doesn't exist in reality. Um, and, and, you know, so I, I kind of have always I saw it that way. When I saw it in the theater the first time, you know, it, it just sort of smacks you in the face immediately with bright colors that we're not accustomed to seeing, especially, I mean, this is 2008, right? 2008 is that the tail end of, of what I like to call the brown and grays of the 2000s, right? right. Um, I revisited Blade Two not too long ago, and I, I've never been a big Blade Two fan. I, I love Blade One. I think that film does not get the credit it deserves for kicking off what we would now consider modern superhero movies. Stephen Norrington killed that film. It looks great. It still looks great. Some ha hammy CG at the end, but whatever. It was 1997, 6, something like that. Uh, so whatever. But Blade Two, directed lovingly by Guillermo del Toro, and it has all of the hallmarks of a Guillermo del Toro film. He even recycles the vampires that he created for Blade Two into his own show later. Um, but that movie is so brown that it drives me nuts. 
it just looks like they just doused the entire stage in dirt and then lit it with yellow sodium lights and called it a day. And it's, it's really hard to watch now. It doesn't look good. It just looks bad. Um, you know, the film itself is fine. It's, it's a watchable superhero action movie, of course, but I, I really hate the way that it looks. And unfortunately a bunch of movies in this time frame that's what they looked like, right? Cause they were going for this very realistic look, you know, and then, you know, you've got people like Michael Bay taking something crazy like transformers and then dirtying it up to try and make it look more real. To, to, to limited success, in my opinion. I think it's Transformers movies sort of look gross. Uh, they're fine. Uh, I, I like the first one well enough, uh, but it's it's overcomplicated and stuffy in, in ways it doesn't have to be. Speed Racer is none of that, right? It's just bright, bold, fast, simple colors, right? It's all primary colors, right? There's no secondary colors in this movie. It's just blues and reds yellows and and it's just like bam in your face immediately and i think it's fairly effective uh as as an open but you know what's your impression i mean do you think that it's them kind of pulling their matrix trick again um i just the the little prism opening itself i immediately i loved that um and it did kind of set the stage for the sort of kaleidoscope visuals that they were going to take you through. Um, you know, it seems like, especially when it gets to the, like that village road show with the spinning background, that's when it really started to feel like an anime opening. Um, mm. Overall though, I, I feel like in, in the editing room and the, when, when doing the color timing for this film, I feel like they may have bumped the saturation up just a tad too much. It's that's a very bright film. It, like is, it, is, an, it is an assault cool. on the senses. It was, I, I had no idea it would be that saturated. I even took screenshots and then desaturated them a little bit to see what the film might have looked like. Mm -hmm. um, just for some of the, the interior scenes, like people's skin, um, I noticed got a little bit almost jaundiced looking because of the saturation uh However, it's it's the teeth yeah the teeth in this movie look yellow everybody's teeth yeah. are yellow and you know everybody's teeth are kind of yellowed right but generally your your actors in films have very you know white kind of pristine teeth not in this movie everybody looks like a three pack a day smoker in this movie <laughs> But it, it is a lot to do with that color timing. And, you know, a bit of it makes me wonder, you know, I, I have a, a decently calibrated, you know, home theater system. It's not, um, you know, it's not pro calibrated. I haven't paid for you know somebody to come in and, and do it. But, you know, I have it set up to where it looks very good to me. And, you know, I think the saturation is, is tolerable. I think it, it's, I mean, obviously their point in having it be this sort of hypersaturation is that they are attempting to evoke the color palette of the anime, right. uh, which would have been drawn and, and painted in traditional fashion with very simple colors. And, and if you look at, you know, Speed Racer's costumes, white pants, you know, bright blue shirt. I made several jokes during watching that this should be called Bootcut Jeans, the movie, because everyone <laughs> is wearing Bootcut boot jeans. Cut jeans. 
It's a lot of leather pants, a lot of um, leather pants with the crotches cut out and replaced with spandex. You can actually sit down in them, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's it, it has a very distinct style. It's also trying in many ways to be somewhat timeless in its design, right? There's a lot of stuff that feels like it's straight out of the 1950s and 60s, 60s specifically. But then there's a lot of stuff too that has kind of a, it could be from now. And Speed Racer's universe is kind of that way. Obviously the, the you know, anime came out in the 60s, but you know, they were driving these incredibly futuristic cars with all these powers and abilities, you know, sort of very influenced at least a bit by, you know, sort of the mecha anime success that was going on at the time. And so they're they're definitely trying to give it a little bit of that out of time component. But as a result, yeah, we've got, you know, bootcut pants, we've got people in you know, Converse, we've got people in, um, you know, very, you know, 50s standard, you know, uh, tight waist dresses, you know, there's just a lot of, of, there's a lot of stuff going on. So the, the production designer was Owen Patterson, um, who he's, he's one of the, the Weta guys. Uh, he, well, I don't know if he's attached to Weta, but he worked on the Lord of the Rings series and, and has a, a long history in, in production design. And, and you can tell they're really, really saturating this thing with, visual imagery uh not just color but um trying to balance out this very very crazy world so uh, you know it, you get kind of really i think within the first couple of minutes you're going to know whether you're going to be able to tolerate this movie or not I, I really think it's that fast um you know i would encourage people to hang on because i think there's a lot there to like but if you cannot handle what this movie's putting down within the first 10 15 minutes you're probably not going to enjoy the rest of it i it's pretty pretty safe bet for me anyway. So we we open on um, we I guess we get a slow push in on a guy dressed all in white with red socks in a locker room. All right, and he's tapping his foot, and then we immediately cut and we do a match cut to a young boy tapping his foot in the same fashion in a classroom. And so this I think is where a lot of the narrative confusion starts for some people because this opening sequence ostensibly takes place in a single race event, right? Speed Racer is racing. Surprise, surprise. And, but as he is racing, we are being treated to flashbacks, multiple flashbacks, layered flashbacks of his life as a race car driver. From his early days of sitting on his brother's lap, because uh, he has an older brother named Rex, sitting on his brother's lap, racing at the same uh, track that he's currently racing on and, and getting a taste of that, injuring himself. Uh, Susan Sarandon is quickly introduced as his mother, who is doting and loving and, and tolerant of her son's peculiarities. Uh, he's, not good, he's not good in school, so he's not a good student, because uh, all he can think about is, is racing. And we even get treated to a sort of hand-animated and hand-drawn sort of 360 circle around, which... And I think is a little bit evocative of bullet time, maybe, a bit. Uh, but it, you know, it's a little playing in the same sandbox, you know, but so they, they do a 360 turnaround at his desk and replace the world with his hand-drawn pictures of racers and cars crashing and all this different stuff. Um, and, and, you know, I think they're trying right off the bat to sell you on the unreality of this world that you're not going to be in a world for the next couple of hours that is is even remotely similar to our world. 
you know, and if you think of it as a, a live action animated show, it kind of works. At least it does for me. Um, you know, if you can divorce yourself and say, okay, this is really just quite literally, they're trying to bring a cartoon to life on screen. You can, there's a lot here to get into, but so we're, we're taken on a race and, and we're introduced to, you know, car racing in speed's world, which is not the car racing that we're familiar with, right? It's like a hot wheels track on steroids. And the cars just kind of slide all over the track. Every wheel of the car is independent of all the other wheels and can be controlled independently. So they can slide sideways, they can spin around, they can jump. Um, if, if I remember from the uh, behind-the-scenes stuff, the, the visual effects team eventually referred to this as, as car-foo. Um, <laughs> Which, again, is a, another, I mean, the Wachowskis directed one of the greatest martial arts action films ever. And so this is is kind of in that vein, but yet instead of, you know, a guy in a sweet black jacket kicking ass, it's cars, right? The cars themselves are, you know, fighting on the track. And uh, and that becomes one of the, the major features of it. So we, we catch up in the flashback, and now we are in the midst of a race at a track called Thunderhead. Uh, and speed is in the lead. Um, so uh, then we sort of flash up into the crowd and we're introduced to the rest of the racer family as it exists today, as well as the Mach 5, the sort of iconic um, white and red vehicle that he drove in the series um, in its its sort of new form, right? And so it's sticky and neon and... It's hard to even describe. I mean, it really does hit you like a ton of bricks. It's just trailed light. Um, I, I know you've seen Acura. Um, there's a lot of effects in this that remind me of the animated effects that they used in like uh, Acura and Ghost in the Shell, right? When they would have a car sort of speed across the screen, it would leave those trails from its taillights, you know, that kind of thing. They're doing all of that with these, you know, CG animated vehicles as well. And so it has, for me, an immediate connection to, to anime um, and, and the, the sort of visual look of anime. But I, I don't know. What do you think of this, this first race um as an introduction to the the world of speed um i i like the racing scenes i like the way that those are filmed probably better than a lot of other scenes save for some of the things in the the racer home i actually really like the design of their house mm -hmm. um, yeah for sure but the racing scenes are probably the most interesting. They get a little bit, and, and it started right off the bat, they are a little bit confusing. And not confusing in the respect that I can't figure them out, but confusing in that they, the, sh the field of vision tends to change a lot. Um, and I know that they're doing that to kind of replicate, like in manga, the way that you change panels and frames and you zoom in on different characters. Um, but there were a few times where I felt a little bit overwhelmed. Where I was like, wow, that, that camera is flying around, and it's very, very fast. 
Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say the second race in Casa Cristo does it. That one was the obviously. worst. <laughs> it does it the most obviously because there's there are literally conversations being had between characters in different cars. And rather than cutting, the camera zooms very quickly from car to car. I mean, it, it is a cut, but they're they're, you know, using uh, match cuts and, and zooms to, to simulate sort of shifting back between car and car. And, and, I, and it's, it's just very those, overt. Those things are meant to feel overwhelming. I think you're supposed to feel absolutely breathless. But then I, I wish that the racing scenes, not particularly the first one, I like the first one the most, um, mm. but it is also the shortest. Yeah, and it's and it's also the one that I think the reason why I think the first race is probably the tightest race even though the last one is also I think really good. The first one is the tightest because it it is it slows down periodically to remind us what speed is really racing against, right? So we've been flashing back and forth between speed now as an adult as a professional race car driver racing at this track that his family's raced at, you know, for years. And we've transitioned back and forth now between him and his brother and his brother's racing career. And so we see a bit of that. And we find out that ultimately he is is racing not against any of the other people on the track. They don't, they don't matter. He's he's beaten them already. He's really racing against the time that his brother set on the track years before. And and so it's this very emotional kind of moment. You can tell that the Wachowskis wanted to open on action. They wanted to open with a race so that you could see what this world was going to be like. But at the same time, they, they need to establish and help us understand who these people are and what their relationships are. And one of the core relationships that becomes central as the story moves on is the relationship between Speed and his older brother, Rex. And we basically find out, and, and the, again, the, I do think, and, and I have no hesitation in saying that this film, along with several others that have been very creative, like you know Hulk, the 2003 Ang Lee version, this film is a masterclass in editing. Um, the way it uses all of the tools in the editor's toolbox, right? Every type of cut, pan, whip, zoom. I mean, it, I mean, not just shot choice, but how they choose to stitch together shots. And they're obviously doing a lot of digital stitching. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of digital effect stitching between shots in this movie. But it... It's, it's truly incredible how many balls they're able to keep in the air simultaneously and still try to tell the story. So we find out over the course of this race, not only Speed and Rex's relationship, that Rex taught him how to drive and taught him how to feel, quote unquote, his car, but also that Rex had gotten into trouble, that he was sort of seen as a bit of an outlaw in the racing scene, that eventually he fell out of favor with that racing scene, and ultimately that he died in uh, a terrible accident but we're also introduced to his speed's girlfriend trixie uh who's like his race spotter in the com in the uh in the anime so we're introduced to him uh the commentators which you know wipe left and right across the screen and oftentimes is one of those commentators wiping across the screen he's bringing with him another or her uh, another shot that we're transitioning to. I mean, again, it's it's just remarkable how much mileage they are getting out of every single second of screen time. You know, it's not like watching something like Dark City, right? Where Dark City on average has a cut every like second and a half in that movie because Proyas is just incredible and you don't feel the cuts. 
In this one, you feel every cut. And I think that's part of why people perceive it as slow, is that every cut, even though it's blended and layered, they're super visible, right? Because in a lot of ways, it's tr it's trying to be like a cartoon, right? A cartoon you can have four or five layers deep, all stacked on top of each other, sliding in different directions, and nobody really bats an eye, right? We don't do that in movies very often because it's potentially confusing. And I think a lot of people saw this as confusing. But, um, all right, so you still have some issues that we're dealing with, but ultimately we find out that Rex left home and that led to his, his eventual death that sort of broke up the racer family. Um, so the racers and, and the Mach 5 specifically, um, it's kind of their signature car. So Speed was kind of always destined to be a race car driver, which is a, another kind of big component of the film is like, you know, should you fight your destiny? Should you just embrace who you are? And Speed has been surrounded by people that have always told him to, you know, follow his dreams, don't worry about it. Um, so the racer family, I think actually, you know, adventure cinema and especially children's adventure cinema is littered with dead parents, right? Um, you know, mentioned Harry Potter earlier, obviously, you know, dead parents, Star Wars, dead parents. It's the Disney tradition, um, really. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it's the easiest way to put your to put your main character in a, a state of, of unease and unhappiness where they have to reconnect with someone else. One of the things I love about Speed Racer is that the family is actually quite functional. Um, they care about each other. They're there for each other. Um, during this opening race, we get to see John Goodman sort of take Rex to task and tell him, you know, if you walk out that door, never ever come back. That's beautifully paralleled much later in the film when Speed basically makes the same choice that he's going to leave home, that uh, his father can't stop him. And this time, you know, John Goodman, who plays Pops Racer, sits him down and says, I'm not going to make that mistake again. Um, that door is always open. You come back whenever you need something. I'm, I'm here for you. And it's this beautiful sort of parallel, and, and it's not something that you generally get to see in these kinds of movies, right? A, a sort of functional, caring, dynamic family that works well together. Um, they have their moments where they, they disagree, and, and we'll talk about a few of those, but ultimately it really is a, a good family, especially once we get truly brought into the present, uh, and they've, they've had another young son named Spritel, who I want to be locked in a closet forever. <laughs> um, Spritel was a difficult character to watch in the anime as well. He's he's the the typical sort of chaos character that you see in uh, in anime. That uh, especially of that era, like he's the character who's there to just cause problems, do silly things. Generally, it ends trunk. up working out. Yep, hide in the trunk, uh, hit somebody with something. You know, I mean, and, and Speed Racer is also a universe where your family can own a monkey. Yeah. Right. They they have a chimpanzee that lives with them, Chim -chim. Uh, whose name is simply Chim Chim. Right. Uh, and I so, wanted him to be locked in the closet too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they they become a, a fixture later. I will say that my children laughed endlessly at their escapades, which I think is exactly the point. That's why they're in the film, uh, is because you know, like my eight year old son is like, oh, that's that's heaven for me. Everything that he's doing is right. Um, 
So Thunderhead comes to a close with Speed approaching the finish line uh, on pace to beat Rex's course record, which of course would be tremendous for him, but it would also represent the sort of wiping away of Rex's history, right? This apparently is the only race where he he still holds the record, or at least that's certainly what it's indicated. So Rex has not, you know, been wiped from the history books, even though Speed was fully capable of taking that record from him. Um, and, and so it is a very emotional thing. And then we are immediately introduced to Racer X, uh, or at least who we will eventually know as Racer X, watching Speed's career from afar. Uh, again, another, there is a lot. Uh, so there, there's a shot type in film uh, called a split diopter, right? Spielberg loves to use split diopter. Mm -hmm. um, and in essence, it's a way for you to have a foreground element that's in focus and a background element that's in focus, right? So if you know anything about cameras, when you focus on a near object, everything behind that object, apart from, unless you use some very specific lens types, is going to get blurry or at least more blurry. So usually when you're planning your shots out, you pick lenses and stuff that are going to minimize that effect as much as you would like it to. But if you really need something up close to be in focus while something in the background is in focus, use a split diopter, which basically allows you to film two elements simultaneously. And um, this movie basically does that. It's like half the movie. Half the time. <laughs> but it's done digitally, right? Where they've filmed two separate elements and then they've simply layered them on top of each other and there's no blur. And I believe that the intent is to replicate an animated film cell, right? Because when you layer film cells to create motion, right? To, to slide two things apart, which again, we see very, very specifically during the uh, uh, Conte Cristo uh, thing with the, the backgrounds and the environment, Basically, you can layer them, but there's no blurring effect. Modern animation, they, they've added blur and, and bouquet and all of these things to simulate what it looks like to really film something. But at the time, uh, especially in the 1960s, you would just have these cells layered on top of each other and they would be in focus with each other because the camera that's filming them is not adding depth in that way. And so I think this movie is trying desperately to replicate that with filmed elements. And... I mean, it's a neat effect. It looks cool. But again, it's so different from what typical film language is that uh, I'm not sure that people would be willing to accept it. Um, so Speed wins Thunderhead. I mean, that's really the main thing. And now he begins to be assaulted by sponsors. Right. And so if... If we're going to call the film convoluted, this is the element that makes it convoluted. Would you would you agree with that? I mean, the family drama with Speed, it's all fairly straightforward. But this is the introduction of Royalton as the pretty obvious villain of the film, uh, I think, is where things get truly complicated. It's, it's a little bit like, you know, tax levies and trade federations in Phantom Menace, if we want to be super honest about I it. Was, I was with it. Until um, the sort of plot complication of the property infringement and like turning it into a big crime investigation and how speed gets wrapped into that. That's where it really headed into convoluted territory. Um, but at the same time, 
I've seen anime. Uh, and that's not, um, that's not unlike other anime things that I have seen. No. Convoluted no. is a very, of, of kind of expected um, aspect to anything based off of an anime franchise. For sure. And, you know, there's a piece of me that wants to believe that, you know, the Matrix was, you know, the, in terms of the Wachowskis in their career, they had made Bound, uh, which was this very small independent production about uh, two women who go on a crime spree. They wrote it, they directed it, they got some funding for it. it. It did okay. And that ultimately is what set them up to get the funding to do The Matrix. The Matrix was a bigger spend, but it was still fairly restrained. Um, you know, they didn't have an unlimited budget. They had to be very creative, right? Many of the, you know, if you ever go back and look at the rig that they used to create those now iconic 360 motion shots, it's literally just a bunch of, of Canon still cameras firing in a sequence around two people as they fall down. Like it's very simple. Uh, it's, you know, what they did with it was not simple, but they found all these creative ways to get these cool shots and these neat effects without going overboard. And so the matrix had a big budget, but it wasn't extreme, but then it was so successful that the sequels had everything they wanted. And, and I, the anti-corporate bent of this you know, the idea that the corporations are in, in power and control everything from behind these very shadowy curtains. It feels a bit like the Wachowskis pushing back against the very system that has just granted them, you know, entrance into the Hollywood elite. And and it, it is a very interesting message to throw, not only at a family film, but at a, a huge, you know, corporate WB blockbuster right but so uh, without beating around the bush any further basically speed is approached by sponsors and the sponsors according to pops racer they they run racing right they are in control of it they have far more power than they should it seems to be the same type of shattery group that rex eventually ran up against and uh, and lost his life to but Royalton is desperate to get speed on his team. Um, and the guy who plays Royalton, uh, he played, he was also in V for Vendetta. I imagine that's where they, they met him. Um, but he played in that film as well. And, and he's done a lot of stuff. Uh, Roger Allum is his name. He's a, mm -hmm. a great was, British actor. He was vibing on some, some Tim Curry inspiration for this role, I think. Yeah, I think if this had been made 20 years ago, 20 years prior, Tim Curry would have been this guy for sure. Um but so Royalton is the the head of Royalton Industries. Uh we do I mean I love the scene with the pancakes. Uh basically he comes and he sits down and he's like, "Oh, these pancakes are delicious. They're incredible." You know, he's he's buttering up the family. Uh you know, Susan Sarandon plays Speed's mom and she's great. Uh, as usual, I mean, she doesn't get a ton to do in this movie. She's basically got to be, you know, the emotional backbone for a couple of scenes. Uh, and then, you know, she's just kind of around. But she gets a couple of really good moments. But, uh, you know, he's even, like, drawing up a contract to buy the recipe because he's putting together some sort of, you know, meal for men on the go or something like that. And this is, you know, perfect and uh, what he wants. So 
Uh, it's pretty obvious that he's the bad guy right off the bat. He, everything is purple with him, uh, which, you know, purple is the color of royalty, but it also usually has villainous connotations in family films. You know, if you go back and look at Disney movies specifically, a lot of the you know villainous characters will wear purple. So it seems sort of in that vein, too. Um, so what was your, you know, what do you think of Royalton as a, you know, is, is there any ambiguity here about who this guy is? Of course not. But yeah. there shouldn't be. Um, he was arguably my favorite thing in the movie. Um, because I feel like that was the character that was having the most fun. And the performance looked the most fun. Um, and that's, that's one thing that kind of sticks with me after the movie is that I didn't feel like enough of the actors were having as good of a time as they could have. And I'm not really sure why. I don't know what the production of the film was actually like, but Roger Allen was having a great time being the bad guy. Um, he certainly seemed to be enjoying himself. And it, it really showed. And so I immediately liked that character. I love bad guys. I love really traditional bad for the sake of being bad guys. Um, that's something that I, I would like more of in films. I don't want, I feel like I've seen enough of the, the gray area villain and I'm ready to go back to just purely bad for the sake of being bad. So yeah. It's, it's sort of refreshing. Again, I think that speaks to the sort of family nature of the film. There's really very little ambiguity here. Um, and and to to its benefit, I think you know we don't need Royalton to be a complex villain. He doesn't have to be, um, and and in many ways, I think Alum because of that really does. As you said, he gets to have a great time with this character. He's just sneering, and you know you can see there's all this malice behind his eyes. Uh, you know, as he, I guess, really they they take the Racer family to his his high rise you know basically his corporate headquarters and then we get this a frankly insane sequence of it them being was, carted through the film that was carted through the facility the one sequence that i visually i didn't like it's it's all it is obviously all green screened everything is uh they're they're sitting in some kind of small cart and they've got lights passing over their heads but everything else in frame is is you know, a, a composite or a, you know, full CG. They're being surrounded by people with segues and, and they're just flying everywhere. You know, it's, it's very visual. It's sort of like what, you know, as I was thinking about it, I was like, well, this is what a kid, like a little kid would think business quote unquote is right. Like it's just things happening everywhere apropos of nothing. But so we get this little tour and we see all the ways that his racers uh, on their team are challenged and the way that they have to, to work hard to be a part of the Royalton family. And so they're blasted with ice and put in zero G machines. And it's just, again, it, it honestly, it feels a little bit like a sequence that you would see in a TV show, like a, a um, almost, almost like a Disney channel. I'll tell you exactly movie, what it looked like, you know? Uh, my husband dropped this one in the middle of that very sequence. He said, this looks a lot like Lazy Town. And, yeah, and I just lost it. Wrong. I was like, oh, God, you're right. Damn you're it. You're not wrong. Yep. 
it has that feel, right? Just that plastic, shiny, slightly human, but everything's exaggerated sort of feel. And the whole movie has that, but this sequence more than any other, it it feels much, much more in those along those lines. I mean, there's that scene where they all uh there's like 30 people standing in a pyramid and then they just fall off of each other and they're all fine. (laughs) I mean, it's just ridiculous. uh, You know, some of the shots again for, I I would think in the mind of a child, you know, business might involve a man in a scuba suit, grabbing fish and attaching them to his belt as he walks around underwater. Maybe, you know, but it's, it's just very, it's a very awkward sequence. I think it's meant to be overwhelming and sort of insane because speed's reaction is supposed to be, this is out of this world. Like I've never seen anything like this before. It does eventually settle down and, and Royalton, you know, is able to make his pitch, which is ultimately not that he wants to take speed away from the, the racer motors brand, but that he wants to bring racer motors together. So here's where we, we sort of now sort of understand how the sponsorships work. So the racer family operate independently, right? They design their own cars, they race their own cars, and speed is their driver. As assu- I assume Rex was before. And Royalton now wants to bring that racer motors independent company underneath the Royalton label and bring speed with it, which is really all he cares about. You know, he's not interested in, in racer family cars or anything like that. He just wants speed because he's proven that he can win. And so it's, it's very, you know, smarmy and, uh, you know, a bit condescending, you know, he's sort of tolerant of, he kind of treats them like rubes, even though we've gotten no impression that they, they are, I mean, they seem a bit, sincere uh, but that's about really it but in any case uh, speed's obviously not very interested and and he kind of gives him some more time to think it over um i guess on that note really one of the the key things that I, i do really like about this movie is that it is unflinchingly and and quite frankly bracingly sincere um and I think that may lead to one of the things that I, I know we've talked about that you don't care for in the film. And that is, is speed's performance. Uh, oh. So sp- speed is played by Emil Hirsch and the worst. <laughs> not, a, you know, I, I'm, I don't loathe Emil Hirsch. I, I think he's done uh, some really good stuff. Uh, I really liked him. There was a small horror movie that came out several years ago now called uh, the autopsy of Jane Doe, which uh, it's basically just Hirsch and uh, Brian Cox, mm-hmm. and it's a, a very sort of low-budget horror movie, and it's great, and he is great in it. Um, obviously, the main thing Hirsch was known for at this point was Into the Wild, the Sean Penn-directed uh, adaptation of Krakauer's book about uh, Chris McCandless. Is that his name? Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually don't mind him in any no, role he- except this one. It's just this. And I, I think, you know, the Wachowskis are excellent directors and, and they do direct their actors well. But I think they often struggle with consistent direction for their central characters. And in the stuff that they have written, not adapted, uh, this is an adaptation, so it's, it's less of an issue, but the stuff that they've written pretty much on their own 
their main characters are almost always ciphers. And they are there to be the eyes of the audience rather than to have a ton of agency for themselves. And so Hershier is is very sincere. Like you can tell he's really being honest, right? Everything he says has some measure of conviction. (laughs) He said he watched the entire series. He watched every episode of Speed Racer. Which, you know, at least he did that. That's good. But he's he's not working very much here. He doesn't become a protagonist that you root for by the end. Like you're not screaming for him in the way that the film wants you to be as it comes to its conclusion. I felt like because the visual style was so over the top, his performance was underdone and the costumes and the visuals ended up wearing him most of the time. Yeah. Um, I, I, get... I just Mo- didn't, I didn't feel a speed as a character really break through at any point. And it wasn't, it's not helped by the fact that Matthew Fox plays Racer X, who is really good and feels like he did step out of of an, a frame of an anime movie. Mm-hmm. Um, even his voice, the cadence that he uses, he sounds he really, like those really yeah. bad 80s English dubs that we used to watch. Sure. Um, something about, I don't I don't know if he studied for that or if he just intrinsically knew that that's how he should sound. Um, well, he he sounds like how a dark and mysterious hero should sound, right? He's his voice everything seems strained. It seems like his neck is just pinched that every, his whole body is like this coiled thing and he's just waiting to unleash. And he's got um, that great vocal fry and that really deep voice. Um, yeah, no, he's and that's the next sequence in the film is our introduction to Racer X and um, uh, Togokan, Tejo, Tejo Togokan, um, who is another sort of central character of, of this story. But ultimately, uh, Togokan is, as so we get another layer, right? So we have the sponsors who control, you know, racing as an industry, of which Royalton is one. And then we have the fixers, right? So the, the mob bosses, basically. The people that, that gamble on these races and they fix the races to make sure they always win. And so we're intro- introduced to one of those. Uh, Cruncher Block, you know, great name, uh, is torturing Teja Togokan because uh, Togokan has refused to throw the races in the ways that he's supposed to. He's, he's becoming resistant to the, the role that he's been playing. And so he's being punished. And it's, I love this scene because the setup, there's like a, a really great uh, aquarium in the back with all these like fake piranhas in it. This beautiful desk, there's all this artwork on the walls. Uh, you know, it looks like somebody's office in an office building. And what we come to find out very quickly is that it's a trailer attached to a truck and they're moving. And I don't know, I, I loved that reveal. Because uh, in the theater, I remember being like, oh my God, that's amazing. Because, you know, it it's a setting that you expect for this type of scene. You know, you're you're torturing a guy, you know, this big powerful mob boss, you've got these big wooden desks and cigars and all this stuff. But no, it's actually mobile, which is perfect because <laughs> everything in Speed's world is mobile, right? Everything moves. And, and I do like that. And so he's being tortured, and then they have been found by Racer X. And in the moment they realize who it is, they know they're in for trouble. And, and this is where I think we really get the first 
the first scene of Carfu, right? The race at Thunderhead is pretty straightforward. I mean, Speed is doing some incredible things. He's spinning around, but there's no contact. He's not fighting with the other racers in this sequence. But so as uh, Racer X is introduced here, his car is you know loaded for bear with weaponry and all this different stuff. He's moving around. He's dodging missiles. He's jumping over things. Uh, it's just, it's very cool. But again, it's very bright. The inside of this, um, you know, mobile office, it, everything is like almost lime green. We do get a couple of cool slow-mo shots. Uh, Racer X comes up alongside and shoots a gun inside it. And uh, we get a couple of slow-mo shots as the bullets are flying through it. It's it kind of reminiscent. You know, we watched Dread last week. It was a little bit reminiscent of those scenes. The color gets super saturated. Everything turns red and everything's like spinning through the air. It was a neat effect. Um, and then there's a, a couple of laughs here is the, uh, oh, what is, one of the guys has to plug a bullet hole in the aquarium with his funny. finger, you know, <laughs> like that's just, you know, my kids were both, uh, my son like had his eye, he had his hands up ready to cover his eyes once he stuck his finger in there, but then ended up laughing because it was, you know, kind of goofy looking. Uh, but so Racer X rescues Togekon and, uh, is able to, uh, you know, sort of get him away from Cruncher Block. And we're introduced, you know, and basically it's our first look at the Racer X costume, which at this point is iconic, right? Even if you don't know much about Speed Racer, you've probably seen that costume. Um, I've always been had a sneaking suspicion that that costume was one of the inspirations for Stanley and, and Jack Kirby in the creation of the X Men. I could be completely wrong, but that look is just so specific to Racer X. And I mean, you could basically take the X off of his head and he would be Cyclops. Like it's <laughs> straight up that costume. So I, I don't know. I love the Racer X costume. I've always liked that character and his introduction here is great. Um, the the speed of it, you know, this is a, a scene that I think, you know, basically works pretty well for me. I don't have too many issues with it. And Matthew Fox is killing it. Um, this is a, a weird time in Matthew Fox's career, right? Basically, it's it's post-Lost. Lost had wrapped up in, what, like, 06, 07? I believe so. Somewhere around there. You know, so so the Lost train has come to a close. He's been in a couple of movies, uh, probably the most notable being We Are Marshall. Uh, he had a little bit of a role in that. Um, and And then if we really want to... You know, tie it back to last week. He was in Pete Travis's other film of note, uh, namely Vantage Point, the murder of the president from 14 perspectives. He was one of the perspectives. And so, you know, he, he's at a kind of weird time. No, Lost was still going at this time. It was 2010. So, yeah, it was still kind of like halfway through its run. Um, so, I mean, he's obviously trying to to break out of being typecast and, and being something else. And I think Racer X is, is a pretty cool character. I think he does some cool stuff with it. Like I said, I really enjoyed the the vocal style that he chose. And that was very out of character for him because I, I did watch at least the first several seasons of Lost. I kind of fell off the, the wagon sure. toward the end. But uh, I was a little surprised that he was so silly like over the top everybody else was a little diet was more dialed back a lot of these performances except for alan 
and Matthew Fox are very reserved, <laughs> but he is yeah. definitely not reserved. No, he, he feels like he's really swinging for it and it, it, it plays out well. So uh, I guess, you know, the next major plot advancement is speed decides to turn Royalton down and um, he returns, they have a conversation and Royal and, and here is actually a scene that I really like, you know, we've, we've talked about like layered narratives the, the race at Thunderhead has like four different parallel stories running on it to help you understand Speed's background. Here we get basically a narration, but a flash forward, right? So when Speed says, no, I don't want to work for you, Royalton says, well, here's what's going to happen next. And then his narration basically shows us the next sort of race sequence in the film, which is a much shorter one uh, at a place called Fuji, um, so it's the the next you know major race in the the league, and it basically says here's what's going to happen. You're not going to finish. All these things are going to take place, and then then you know the stuff that you were talking about about like the corporate espionage component all comes in, where Royalton says, oh, all these you know lawsuits will come up against your family's business, and you're not going to be able to do these things, and then all these things are going to happen, and then finally we get and this is my favorite character name in this movie, uh, Inspector Detector shows up with Racer X and says, you know, you're being blackmailed. This happens all the time. The only way that we're going to be able to get out of this is if you are willing to work for us. We know that Royalton is dirty. We know he's doing illegal stuff behind the scenes, but we can't, we can't get enough on him. You know, now you need to, to work for us. And the way you're going to work for us is you're going to come to this deadly rally race. You know, not a sanctioned race, not a race on a track. You're going to come to this rally race. And you're going to race for us. And then this Tejo Togokan guy is going to give us dirt on Royalton and some of the other sponsors. And that'll finally allow us to have investigation. So then we kind of get another aspect of the plot where Royalton, the, and this is all background. I have a feeling that some of this stuff was cut. You know, because I, I, this movie's already super long, like so long. Um, <laughs> but I have a feeling there was more stuff about like the race technology uh, because it's very important towards the end. But basically, Royalton uses a particular type of uh, what they call them transponders or something. Um, and those are what power his cars. And so he wants to corner the market on this particular technology. And the only way he can do that is by basically doing a deal with another guy to get the, the Togokan foundries, right? He needs to get that business. And if he does, then that'll allow him to own a corner of the market and he'll make more money. Because that's ultimately what he tells Speed is that it's never been about racing. The Speed shares this really great, I mean, it's, you know, again, we're talking about like really understated performances. I think this is another one that actually has a really good, you know, emotional heft to it. He tells the story that, you know, after Rex had died, his family was really struggling. His dad, you know, didn't even want to work, didn't want to go in the shop and make cars. And then they wound up staying up late and watching old race footage. And there's like the, the 43 pre, you know, and it's supposed to look like really old. <laughs> it looks like, it looks like some modified stock footage and, um, you know, they're finding it out at the end and basically him and his dad, they're like cheering, like it's a live race, like it's happening right in front of them. And, and that was like a thing that changed for them. So he tells this story to Royalton and Royalton just laughs at him. He's like, Oh, it's so stupid. 
And then he basically lays out like all of the races are planned. Everything is fixed. It's all about convincing people to spend more money on this for their cars or for getting these kinds of engines and other things. And, and then it's all just a big thing to control the flow of money in the market. And, and it sort of crushes speed. And here's where I think a little bit of his, because there are some signs of life out of Emil Hirsch up until this point in the film. Not a lot, but a couple. But then I really think that he's supposed to feel truly, truly depressed at this information. And then that kind of just governs his entire character for the next like 20 minutes. <laughs> I don't I, think it works, you know? Yeah, I don't, I didn't get the the depressed thing from it. It's more like he just kind of uh, flattens out. Um, I don't know, that, that just didn't work for me. You're right, that's where the character does take a bit of a turn. It feels like it, you know, it feels like it's supposed to, like it was soul crushing for Speed to hear, and he doesn't really get over it. He's actually, because it's much later in the film, after you know a bunch of plot developments have taken place, that he sits down with Pops, and Pops says, hey, you remember watching that with me? That was really where it turned around. And then he's like, but that's the whole thing, Dad. Like, you know, or that's the whole thing, Pops, is like that whole thing was fixed, and it was all a lie. And that's like 40 minutes later in the movie. So for that 40-minute time span, I think we're supposed to believe that Speed has still been crushed by this information from this corporate overlord and it's i guess it's not until pops kind of breaks pops that bubble and says ah that guy doesn't know what he's talking about he's a liar you can't trust those people but it, it does i think have some negative effects on his character that at that point he should have moved beyond that you know revelation because it's obvious that that's not the way things are going um so Ultimately, Speed defies his parents, who don't want him to race in this thing, and he decides to go to Casa Cristo <coughs> and, and race. And uh, this is really where he gets to, uh, you know, sort of meet Racer X for the first time and, um, you know, sort of drive with him, which, you know, leads to another, you know, sort of plot development. But here's where they introduce, because in the, in the show, Speed had all of these like crazy gadgets on his car. It was like Inspector Gadget, but a car, right? Where he had all these crazy devices that he could press that would defend him from other people who were trying to hurt his car during the race illegally, you know, the cheaters. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a very, it's almost a James Bond scene, you know, it's like some, it's like Q sort of, you know, telling James about the laser in his watch and all this stuff. And again, the, the editing in this sequence, it's basically just a bunch of shots of the various characters who are involved in the sequence standing on a rotating plate. And then they use those characters rotating across the screen to to serve as the, the wipes in between the sequences. And it's it's really good. Again, we get a bunch of time shifting because basically they're we're being told of all these devices and their existence while he's sitting in the starting line for the Casa Cristo Classic. And then we find out that everybody else in the race is using all this illegal stuff, and that's why he needs it in the first place. So here in this sequence is really where the car foo begins, and it starts off like a rocket. Um so everybody's there. Uh, the team that was supposed to win, the, the people who had been determined by the fixers, um, that's in question now. They don't know if they're going to win because they've got this wild card set of, uh, in the race and that they're going to have to take out. And so 
pretty much right off the bat, you know that Speed is is going to have a target on his back. And the opening sequence is just this mayhem of all of these cars with all these crazy devices trying to take out Speed and his team of Racer X and Tejo Tokukam. And it's it's really beautiful. It's supposed to be them driving through a, a palace kind of thing. So it's very dangerous, very tight quarters, and everybody's just sort of layering on top of each other. But we really get a good look at Speed's uh, jump stilts, right, which sort of propel him in the air, and we find out that he's exceedingly good at, like, flipping over other cars. And I don't know. the All of these sequences, even though this is my least favorite, you know, just race sequence in the movie, there is some awesome action in this set. Um, I love Racer X because he's so aggressive. Um, and I love that the way that they drive, the way that you see their cars move, sort of match and fit the characters. Speed's very fluid. He's very quick. Whereas uh, Racer X is just all about violence, right? It's just, I'm going to hit you as hard as I can. And I kind of love it. We also get a lot more here in, in this sequence of the, the sort of flat layering effect that's meant to replicate the animation cells. All, you know, Casa Christi is a rally race, so it's all, uh, all outside. And we just see all of these layers sort of full, folding against each other in these crazy ways. Uh, it almost feels like paper craft to me uh, when I watch it. It just feels like somebody was layering these papers on top of each other and then just shifting them around to create uh, a kind of mobile background. And it's very overt. It's very cartoon-like. And... You know, at this point, again, if you're not sort of on board with the unreality of the film, you're probably going to absolutely hate this sequence. Um, this had some of the more eye-searing color choices. Um, I was happy to see Speed in the, the traditional costume with the neckerchief. That was right. I this... was waiting for the neckerchief. Yeah, this is the sequence that has, like, the speed racer that everybody knows from the, you know, the the... And the anime images, right? The, the blue shirt, the the neckerchief, the, the white helmet, everything. Um, but the this this was where the the driving sequences started to get a little bit difficult for me to to keep up with. I guess I, I found myself um, not confused by the action. Like I said, it's very to follow. It's easy to follow what's going on, but it's more a sensory overload. Um, because it is so saturated and, and this particular race feels like the colors are so much more saturated, partially because the race sections take place during the day. Mm -hmm. Um, and other, you know, most of the other cars we've seen them, we've seen them racing at night. Um, and it was a bit long. I do feel like some of the action could have been a bit more impactful if it had been shaved down a little bit sure um, yeah and for but for 2008 i have not i i haven't i hadn't seen a lot of films that were willing to do these kind of epic sweeping long action sequences you know the way that we're used to marvel universe um doing that now so it was interesting to see how a film in 2008 took that approach um but yeah that was that was my only struggle was just a lot of color it's and it's and it's very unprecedented. So there's not a ton of, you know, I mean, even a Marvel movie when you've got or, a, you know, just a modern even the, the later John Wick movies, if I'm being honest, like 
they reach a point where it's just kind of sensory overload. Um, one of the few movies that I feel have, have walked that line well is Mad Max Fury Road. Um, George Miller is, he could give a master class in, in film pacing, but the action sequences, even though pretty much from 15 minutes on in Mad Max, it is a never ending action sequence. It never feels that way. And you are never, ever lost or confused ever. Um, and it's mostly because of editing choices, center framing, uh, which I, I think center framing would do a lot for pretty much all of the sequences in this. The Wachowskis do it a bunch. I mean, they, they know this technique of keeping the important visual information in the center of the frame so that your eye doesn't have to travel, right? Because that's where you, you lose your audience is they're looking to the left and the thing you want them to see is to the right, but they don't know to look to the right to see it. And in a fast-paced film where you've got, you know, edits every couple, you know, every half second or every second, you can lose a lot of visual information if you don't know where to look. And so I think that this movie suffers from that a bit, um, that it's it's kind of all over the place. The fr- They're doing a lot of simulated zooms and a lot of whip pans, you know, very, very fast it camera motions. A lot of pod racing. And I actually mean that as a good somebody. I enjoyed. Yeah, no. I enjoyed the pod racing. The pod racing scene is, is an un, it's an under. I mean, it, it's the reason to watch episode one at this point. I mean, give me a break. Um, I was twelve when that movie came out. You know, I, I I can't, I can't feel bad about it forever. It's not a very good movie, but the pod racing was cool. <laughs> yeah, no, the pod racing scene is is still the special effects in the pod racing sequence still look fantastic. Mm-hmm. Like they still. Look fantastic. That movie is 21 years old. And the special effects in that sequence specifically. Now, the final battle, I don't even want to talk about because all those Gungans look like garbage now. That's I'm sorry, they just do. But the pod racing sequence, the way that they chose to shoot that, the way that they stitched it all together. And they obviously the, spent so much time on that. It's it's a gorgeous sequence. That's and this all movie money went. <laughs> <laughs> And this movie is obviously playing in that sandbox. And the the brightness of the colors, especially with the cars, I, I think, you know, obviously we've got a lot more cars to keep track of in this race. Um, and I think they do try to color code them. You know, the the first group that Speed fights against are supposed to be like these, you know, like jeweled characters and they're, they're you know, like pink fur everywhere. So like their cars are very bright and pink and saturated. And and so I think they're trying to do some differentiation with color, but everything else is so saturated. It's just it's it's a lot to process mm-hmm. and to understand what those colors mean and and why we're seeing them. It doesn't always make sense. Um, so they they finish the race on the this is a, a multi day multi stage rally race. They lose the first day, but they're poised to be able to win the second day. Um, but the the racer family figures out what's going on. They travel there. Um, we get some some showdowns between the team itself. Togokan is obviously very stressed about something. Um, he feels the need to win. And we probably get, there's a, a shot in the hotel room where Racer X is like fully lit in his costume. Speed is still in his classic costume, blue shirt, white collar, red uh, red neckerchief. You know, 
he looks more like Speed Racer in that sequence than pretty much any other time in the film. Yeah. And I, I, I love the look of it, right? Because we've talked about bad costuming before. You know, the Resident Evil movies, when they put Jill Valentine in that, you know, Resident Evil 3 nemesis suit, she looks terrible. Everything looks bad. Just why did you do that? It doesn't even look right. This it looks really good. Like, I, I think it's actually really awesome. I do selfishly wish that it had been Zac Efron in that costume. Would he Honestly, not have looked fabulous? If we could just take Zac Efron circa 2018 and just drop him reverse osmosis style into this movie, yeah, I th- I think it would be a remarkably different once, film. Once I read that he was in the running to be Speed Racer, I'm like, how did they not pick him? Speed Because ra- the thing I remember about I Speed know. Racer is those big eyes with the really pretty eyelashes. Like yeah, Speed Racer yeah. was always kind of extra fancy and really pretty and i guess i had hoped to see a prettier boy in that role <laughs> but when you finally <laughs> see him in that costume I, I can't help but but think like zach efron would have looked really good <laughs> yeah that's true and I, I mean they're obviously they darkened hirsch's hair substantially um but did you notice that they darkened it and then they gave it that blue highlight mm-hmm I mean, they're really going for that that sort of like traditional manga look where, you know, I mean, in comic books as well. I mean, if you have a character with black hair, you do the highlights in blue to show depth and and they like straight up, they either lit him that way or they actually built that blue into the, the coloration they did for his hair because uh, it is it is dead on and it, it looks good for the most part, but. Yeah, it's it's very different. And then Trixie, she has basically the same thing, but hers is is red when it, it shows up, which is and Christina Ricci already looks like an anime character. Yeah, man, I'm, there are a couple of shots where she's she's animating it up, and she, I mean, you talk about the eyes. I mean, she has the eyes, like yeah. they straight didn't up. Embiggen those eyes. They at didn't all. need to do <laughs> anything to the Christina Ricci eyes. She is an anime character, and honestly, I think she's one of the the unsung really solid components of this. I wish she had more to do in the story. I, I like that she gets to race in the second day coming up, that, that she does get to, to, to be more involved in the main thrust of the plot, but she's mostly sidelined in this and, and Trixie was sidelined in the show. I mean, she was visible. You know, well, speed race is not going to pass any Bechdel tests. No, not anytime <laughs> soon. Even though I can feel the Wachowskis trying to work in that direction, but it's it's just it's not, not a franchise that lends itself to that story. <laughs> no, not unfortunately. Maybe if they'd gotten a sequel and could continue pushing, but for this very sort of traditional family actioner, it's it's not going to do the trick. Uh, so the second day of Casa Cristo. Uh, is immediately set off to a bad start when everyone that night is attacked by ninjas. Just straight, black-suited ninjas attacking people and trying to drug them in the night. That um, made me laugh really hard. <laughs> it's really funny. Uh, the, this whole sequence, I think, it's it's probably my... It's, it's, pro- it's one of my favorite sequences in the film because it's... it's Honestly, I think the the entire movie would have been better if it would have been able to hit this tone more often <laughs> because it's so over the top and it's so cartoony. 
I mean, like, there's a, a Weeble's Wobble, but we don't fall down joke in this. Is like one of the ninjas gets knocked on his back and then immediately pops back up because Squirtle's on his leg. And, you know, there's there's a bunch of, like... Well, I guess earlier in the show, Squirtle had been watching an Squirtle. anime. <laughs> I'm definitely going to call I, him Yeah, I knew I was going to do that. I knew it was going to happen. Uh, Spritle had been watching an anime, and every time Spritle gets into a fight, like, it does the traditional... Yeah, you know, like your Dragon Ball style, two characters leaping at each other at each other with just you know striped lines in the background, kind of thing. And but it culminates with Pops, uh, who we find out was a wrestling champion by zooming <laughs> in super fast to the ring he's got on his arm, on his hand. Uh, he spins a ninja around and throws him out a window. And I was like, was that a ninja? And and John Goodman delivers with the utmost sincerity and believability with the simple shrug of his manly shoulders, more of a ninja, really. (laughs) (laughs) That was, that was the line of the movie. It's the line of the movie, dude. Like it's so good and it would not work if it was anyone other than John Goodman delivering that line. Uh, And I'm going to go, I'll go ahead and say, and I don't think it's going out on a limb to say this. uh, Matthew Fox is great in this. Like, I think, He's near, nearly perfect as Racer X. He understands what that character is. He understands its function in the story, and he's just hitting those beats. But the unsung hero of this movie, the reason to watch this movie if you have zero interest in Speed Racer is John Goodman. He's he the is reason to so watch most good. Of the things that he's in. It's true. He is fantastic in this, uh, as he is in most things. I mean, uh, he's my favorite part of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Pretty much anything he does with the Coen brothers. But he's he is the heart of this film. Like he is the one navigating the difficulties of this situation with his kids, um, along with Susan Sarandon. I mean, and they are, but they never really team up. They never do any team parenting in this. It's either Speed's talking to his mom or Speed's talking to his dad, and and the scenes between Speed and John Goodman uh, as pops really work. And it's mostly just Goodman selling it. Uh, you know, whereas Speed's a bit of a, a brick, he's just sort of a solid slab wall who is, I am a, a, I have emotions, right? Like that kind of thing. Like John Goodman has all this subtlety and all this sincerity that he brings to that character. And it just grounds the whole movie for me. Like he is just awesome. And he's not, I mean, he's not in it. A, he's in it a lot, but he is not a central focus a tremendous amount of the time. We do actually, you know, speaking a bit of digital de-aging, we do get quite a bit of sometimes subtle and a lot of minimal, but there's a lot of de-aging being done for Sarandon and Goodman, uh, especially early in the film. They also light it a little bit better. Um, it's, it's mostly just sort of wrinkle removal, but it's pretty extreme in a couple of spots because it's supposed to be 10, you know, 12 years prior that's uh you know some of the events and the flashbacks happen but i think most of that stuff lands pretty well too but yeah goodman is fantastic and he's great in this sequence the nanja joke is great um when he looks at speed and says like you added something to the car didn't you and he's like yeah you know, put some defensive stuff on he says now it doesn't run right does it and he's like oh no just 
pulls to the left, kind of rides rough. He's like, Sparky. You know, and then they just kind of stride out of the room. Like that kind of stuff, it feels very genuine and it feels very honest. In a film that that needed some more of that heart coming from its main character, right? Like there's a lot of people around him who are doing that work, but he needed it as well. Um, but in any case, the, the second day of Casa Cristo is going to be complicated because while the ninjas failed, uh, there was a cool fight scene with Racer X, uh, just like with a scarf wrapped around his face fighting a ninja. And those were pretty cool. Uh, but basically, uh, Tejo gets uh, poisoned and he is, is unable to drive the next day. So they're going to have to come up with another solution. Their solution is to have Tejo impersonate his sister and have Trixie replace him on the road. And it's this next sequence that we get the the very anime zoom three, you know, three characters all talking to each other in cars and instead of cutting we're just zooming back and forth between them. This this is really where that sequence happens. Uh, but I love that it's back and forth between Speed and Trixie for a long time and then it just immediately shoots back to Racer X and he's like children focus. Um, <laughs> Again, just Matthew Fox doing a great job, you know. I appreciated that that was at the exact moment where I was like, I've had enough. <laughs> it yeah, was, I mean, it's... it was very well timed because that that little tete a tete between them had just edged over into like, I'm I'm going to pause the movie and take a break. If you don't yeah, stop. I'm a, you got to cut this out. <laughs> and he's like, children, focus. Uh, and it is it's 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 very time. It's timed very well. But really, this entire set is where we see some of the first really significant, I guess we can call it Carfu, um, where these these two racing teams, the, the Snake Oilers, I guess is what they're called, um, are, are trying to maintain the lead, and uh, Speed and his team are basically right behind. And they do a lot of really aggressive stuff. There's one scene where Trixie, uh, one of the Snake Oiler guys, like puts his wheel right in front of her face, like he's... He, putting the the tire into the cockpit and trying to rub her face and then speed pays him back by reversing his car like flipping his car the other direction and then putting his front tire in and slowly angling it toward the guy's face which i thought was really good like we, we talk about speed not having much emotion in this like in this sequence and, and these couple of you know action beats that we get over this next thing i feel like he does finally get a little bit of life in his character Unfortunately, it's all about like defending his girl, which is you know very trite and and kind of unnecessary because it's been pretty firmly established at this point that Trixie's more than capable of taking care of herself. But I, I feel like he does get a couple moments here where it's like, oh, cool, finally getting a, a little burst of life from him as a character. Um, so they they need to finish the race with Tejo, so they have to kind of stop in the middle of the mountains where there's no cameras and swap back where Trixie can you know sort of resume her her helicopter work but uh there's some fun sequences here we get a, a little traditional I mean it's a very anime action sequence there's lots of you know flying lines lots of whip pans lots of people getting kicked uh, but basically they they sort of take out a group of the mobsters and I really love the racer x stuff in here he does a couple of really cool moves um, it's just it. this sequence more than any I mean and this is a movie that has felt very much like an anime up until this point but this fight sequence in the like the mountain pass it really felt like just chopped straight out of an episode 
of, you know, if not Speed Racer, another sort of like martial arts focused anime. And and it, it worked for me. I liked it. I mean, I guess the breaking point was probably the delivery of the, a Chim Chim cookie, uh, as Spritel calls them. Uh, <laughs> basically, the monkey flings its poop as... Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't put a monkey in your movie unless you're going to get some poop flung. I mean, point, I was right? waiting I mean, for it. I mean, it's it's just de rigueur, right? It's, it's only a just, matter it's, of time. It's what's going to happen. Um, but the real emotional climax of this this part of the race is that uh, Speed is asked to travel through the cave where his brother died. Uh, so Rex was was racing in this race, going through this cave when his car wrecked. The safety systems, which the safety systems in the cars in these are pretty great. We've seen it in lots of other movies, but it's it bubbles you basically like wraps you up in a bubble and then spits you out like an egg. Um, Rex's car had been that had been disabled. And so that's why he didn't survive. He died. Uh, we can see Racer X do some really cool moves, taking out some of the other snake oilers. He's like flipping them over with his jump with his uh, jump jets. I don't even know the jump stilts. Um, and speed is, is very freaked out. He's almost overtake, ready to overtake snake oiler and snake oiler cheats, of course. Right. Uh, he cheats by oiling up an already icy road and speed is flung off the side of this mountain that they've been traversing. But because speed is amazing and he's incredible, he drives his car down the side of the mountain, uses his, uh, he's got like spike tires that were there to help him with, you know, weird terrain. And then he flips himself off of one side of the mountain onto the other side of the mountain and then travels up the mountain into Mach 5. And it's, it's a pretty cool sequence, right? It's, it feels very Wachowski, like big, big emotional action beat, right? Like it's, it's like Neo dodging the bullets on the roof. They're very good at you know? building up to their big action set pieces. Yeah. Like, they know how to generate some hype. That's one thing that I'll say about their film career is, like, they're good at generating hype. Yeah, they they know how to structure an action sequence to a big, single, semi-iconic moment, right? Like, they, they know how to do that, and they know how to do that well. And And that's what that moment feels like. Um, and so the, the race continues, snake oiler finally loses it and he actually starts trying to shoot speed, which feels a bit out of place. (laughs) Um, you know, there've been guns in the movie, like racer X has guns all over his car and stuff, but this, for some reason, everybody freaks out and they're like gun and, and everybody's like losing their minds and speed, you know, has a bulletproof, I don't know, windshield or something. So he's not in danger. But uh, he uses it to, you know, keep Snake Oiler distracted and then eventually knock him off the mountain. So they win. They win Casa Cristo. Uh, everything is worked out. They're going to get the dirt on Royalton so that the racer family can resume their activities. You know, the the main thing that we get at the end of this sequence is, uh, you know, there are a couple of really iconic speed racer things. And one of them is him leaping out of his car in in the victory lane i was also waiting for that and then it finally happened (laughs) yeah like the the iconic pose you know of him leaping out of the car and sort of you know looking into the the distance and so they do their version of that and it's it's very cool you know they enjoy their moment but royalton is working behind the scenes 
And ultimately, we find out that it was all for naught because Tejo Togokan was not actually going to give them any dirt. He was just using the victory to drive up the cost of his family business so that they could sell to Royalton but make a fortune in doing so. Uh, so it's all been a big trick. Uh, Snake uh, Speed feels incredibly betrayed. He, you know, everything collapses. And then we get a cool little, uh, you know, car foo fight between Racer X and Speed at Thunderhead, I guess. He's back at Thunderhead, his hometown race, uh, race arena, I guess. And uh, they fight it off. And he finally has like his moment of confrontation with Racer X where he accuses him of being his brother. And and here I thought Matthew Fox just kills it in this scene. He's so good because he finally lets the wall come down a little bit. Like he's been very stoic up until this point, very dry. He's and he still has that quality, you know. Yeah, good. He's he's very much the mysterious anime guy up until this point. Right. He removes the mask. Right. So you know, Speed you know points out he drives just like Rex. He's aggressive like Rex was. He says you know when we race together. It's like we've been driving together for years. You know, just just tell me the truth. Are you Rex? And and finally, you know, finally Matthew Fox takes the mask off, and and he doesn't look anything like Speed's brother. And so Speed kind of lets it go. But we also get you know the Race Rex offers up his his bit of advice to Speed. You know that he has to race because he wants to. He has to drive because he feels that within him he can't be told or anything like that it, it's very reminiscent of advice that he had gotten from rex um and uh it, it ends with him basically saying like when you do finally figure out why you why you race i, I just hope i'm there to see it you know it's it's this really nice sort of moment of connection and i I've, again it, have you noticed or did you notice that most of the conversations in this movie are shot in singles. Yes. <laughs> nearly nearly every discussion is shot singles. There is no coverage in this movie whatsoever. And it is very strange. Um it's not like they're not standing on the same set. You know, I mean a lot of times if you're if you're filming inserts after the fact, you know, you kind of resort to that because the other actor might not be there or, you know, whatever. But so much another reason why I think this movie is often accused of of lacking emotion is because the characters you never really see any of the actors interact with each other. Uh, there are there are a few scenes, but wonder... a lot of the big moments they just aren't. I wonder how much of that was influenced by the show and the manga. Yeah, I, I think it's that's so the only much thing I of manga of. is close-ups. I mean, we can't deny that. Like a lot of those conversations take place in that that shot, reverse shot kind of close-up panel because that is faster to draw. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, one character is easier to draw on a panel than two. Um, so I, I wonder if that was maybe a a tribute or a technique or something that was supposed to make us think of the original artwork. Or at least that's what I thought of. Yeah, no, I, I, that's kind of where I'm at too. Like it's, it's a technique that I feel, especially if you watch the movie a couple of times, it becomes really obvious that their way that they're doing it, that it's an intentional choice on their part 
you know, like even the, the sort of hyper emotional sequence that comes up, you know, shortly after the racer X one, where, um, speed is, is talking to pops and, and pops is reversing course and saying, I'm not going to treat you like Rex. We get pops in full frame and then like the back of speed's head. Right. But we never really see the, the other side of them where we could see both of them looking at each other while sitting on the couch. It's all still basically just singles. And one, I mean, especially this era of anime, like if we look at the 60s, and this really holds true for animated shows really up until the 2000s, where you've got a static shot and then you're basically just moving lips, right? But everything else mm-hmm. is frozen because you're saving money, right? In, yeah. in animation, every time a character moves, it costs you money. It's the same reason that throughout this film they use those repeating backgrounds. And mm-hmm. they do it so that you notice. Like they've right. the film wants you to notice because the show didn't want you to notice. And yet that right. was that was a key to the animation on the show. Yeah, and it's it's very much you know, it feels like a production design choice and a directorial choice where they you know, they sat down, they they put their heads together and said, Okay, we this is the look that we're going for. This is what we want but we want this in film as opposed to, you know, hand-drawn animation cells. But yeah, there's so much repeating background. Uh, you know, whenever Racer X is driving with uh, Tejo right after he rescues him, it's just the, the white lines passing, you know, on a blue background, which would have been, you know, to imply motion in a car. It's, it's just a very obvious set of choices. But again, I, I wonder if that's why audiences didn't connect with it. Because they are truly trying to film a, a 60s anime, right? And, and make that feel real. And I just don't know if, if an, you know, a, a typical or a modern audience is going to accept that. And apparently they didn't. I mean, if, if we look at the evidence, they, they didn't accept it. But it kind of works for me. I, I think it's, it's such a unique experience. Because you really don't see films do this kind of stuff. Um, there is a really cool... Um, there is a stunt film made by a bunch of stunt guys that is, I think it's, it's supposed to be like my hero academia, but in Los Angeles. And, uh, I know they've, uh, the, the quarter crew YouTube channel, they've had those guys on there and they've shown some scenes from it before. I had seen one of them before I, I knew about those guys, but they've got like three of them out now. And it, it is legitimately trying to reproduce an anime fight in real life with the same kind of camera motions, the same kind of uh, match cuts, the, the animated backgrounds, you know, the whole nine yards, but with real people. And in a lot of ways, it feels like an extension of this. Like it's what this is trying to do, which is just replicate that feeling in a film. And again, I, I don't know if it's something that everybody can accept, but I think it does produce a pretty unique, a unique setup that I think is pretty fascinating. But in any case, we, we move into the final phase of the film, you know, this very long two hour and 15 minute family movie for kids. And ultimately, uh, Speed is given an invitation to the Grand Prix, right? This race that is supposedly fixed by all the sponsors where all of the parameters are known. Every racer knows before they start what place they're going to be in. Royalton is debuting his new car that he's going to sell. Um, you know, all this stuff, like it's, it's this big idea. They've got a, a chance to go, but they have to build a new car because the Mach 5 has been trashed from the Casa Cristo race. 
So they build the Mach 6. And um, it's a really fun montage. I mean, it's it's you could argue that this entire movie is just one really, really long montage, which again could be part of the problem because everything kind of flows together. Everything's kind of layered on top of itself. But this in specific is, is a really fun montage as the racer family assembles the Mach six. And we get all these nice parallels of Royalton eating caviar and stuff. And like mama racers just like making sandwiches and whatever. Um, but they assemble the, the Mach six and and they put uh, what's it, a Bernoulli convergenator, I think is what it's called. <laughs> Some ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous gobbledygook. <laughs> yeah, Bernoulli's a science thing, and a convergenator sounds I don't know like something that could exist. Uh, but basically, it's this super powerful engine at the heart of the Mach Six that's going to give it a, a little more kick, according to Pops. Uh, but so they arrive at the Grand Prix and and they are the wild cards, right? They're the the unknowable element. Uh, we do get, you know, I guess we haven't really talked about Sparky um, in the film. Mm. Uh, so so Sparky is there. Sparky is the the garage guy, and his his name is Kick Gurry, right? He's an Australian actor of some. Some note, uh, I first became aware of him in another Alex Proyas joint uh, called Garage Days, which was uh, a very different Alex Proyas film. Uh, at that point, mm-hmm. the only two that I had seen was uh, would be uh, Crow and Dark City, which uh, we'll more than likely talk about Dark City here before too long. Uh, but he had, had made another smaller film. It's a, more of a dramatic comedy uh, about a garage band trying to make it uh, in, in the you know, late '90s, 2000s, in in Sydney, Australia, and, and Kit Curry was uh, Kit Curry was was the main character of that, and and I loved him in that. I thought he was really good, um, and and so Sparky in this is their their sort of garage hand. Uh, I, he was in the show, wasn't he? I, I don't, I honestly I... don't remember. Hmm. You know, I don't remember. I'm I'm pretty sure that that he was, but in any case, he's been kind of backgrounded throughout most of this. He's around. Um, he he's really played for laughs. He's sort of just like another spritel character. Um, he gets beat up pretty badly at the fight in the mountains, and um, in the ninja fight, he he jumps on the ninja's back and and the ninja like sort of coils him up and he's like, I got him. I got him. And he's like, don't got him. You know, and then gets flipped over. So he's, he's that guy in the film, but we actually get a nice emotional moment where, you know, speed is, is getting ready to head out onto the track. And, you know, Sparky realizes he'd never have, he wouldn't have had the opportunity to be here at this moment if it wasn't for speed and his family. And, and so they get a nice little moment together. And the only thing the scene really does is be like, why has this guy just been the comedic relief for the last, you know, two hours? Why has he not had more moments like this? Because he really sells it in this, you know, 15 second scene where he gets to have a moment with uh, with speed. But uh, he's really good in it. Uh, and again, most of the people, save for, I guess, Emil Hirsch, are really actually doing a great job with their characters uh, for the most part. But so as, as the movie comes to a close, we really push into uh, the final race, right? The Grand Prix and and Speed has immediately got a target on his back. And we find out that Royalton has put a million dollar bounty on his head. The first person to knock out Speed Racer gets a million bucks. 
straight off the top. So everybody's coming for speed. And I'll be honest, this, this sequence, just the whole thing, it works. Uh, it just pretty much from start to finish. It's still that, that sort of hyperkinetic, crazy, over-the-top uh, approach. Like uh, nothing's changed, but I, I think this is very readable. It's the first race since um, the, the first race, you know, it's the first race since the first race in the <laughs> film, that it's shot at night. So the cars are easier to read in the background. You know, the, the trouble that we had with Casa Cristo being in the daytime, that's gone. Um, it is complicated by just a tremendous amount of like neon lights and everything, you know, the city in the background kind of thing. But, um, but really, I think this race is, is much easier to follow. And it has a very clear narrative through line, right? The problem with Casa Cristo is we've got like three or four different characters doing things simultaneously and overlapping. This is really just speed and the other racers on the track. And I think that that helps to focus it a bit into a, a really solid, but again, very long action sequence. Like this race yes. is long. I don't um, think it would have felt as long if the Casa Cristo section had not also been as long as it was. Right. Yeah. I think you could have, this one could have played to the length that it is in the current film. And I don't think it would have been quite as wearying for audiences if Casa Cristo had been shorter. Um, you know, but really Thunderhead, Casa Cristo and, and this race are the three major action set pieces of the film. There are other minor things that take place, but this is it. And, you know, and to a certain extent, I could almost feel the Wachowski saying like, is this enough? You know, cause one of the things the matrix did is establish a kind of breathless pace. The original matrix in and of itself doesn't have that much action in it, right? If you watch it now, it is not a tremendously action packed film. Like it's got a lot, but it's not like it's mile a minute. This film takes plenty of time for character development as this one does too. But whereas the matrix, apart from really that last run, you know, when Neo is attempting to escape and, and get out of the matrix. That's kind of the longest uninterrupted action sequence in the matrix. And it's exactly what we see here. They save it for the end when you're fully invested in what's going on. You know what the characters are doing. Their motivations are clear. Now we can go. And, you know, I, I think this film might've benefited from some of the same approach. I, they're trying to do it, but I just don't think it executes as well. Um, I will say that the race sort of, um, once it gets down to speed versus, uh, what is it? Cannonball Taylor. Is that his name? Um, when he's kind of dueling that guy that works for Royalton and is driving his new car, um, that's, that whole thing I think works really well when he's out of the field where there's like 20 cars around him and it's really just him and one other person that I think works really well. I mean, it, a lot of people, I think, accused this at the time of just feeling like a video game, and rightly so, with the color palette, the, the sort of oversaturation of it makes a ton of sense while you would make that comparison, but this really does feel like a Street Fighter fight. It feels like Street Fighter 2, you know, it's like just two people duking it out, and, and I kind of like it. I, I think, again, we see Speed come to life a little bit, I, you know, he's got the line, you know, get that weak shit off my track. Um, 
I really think the character would have benefited from having more of that in the film um, rather than saving it for the, the end of the movie. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about um, uh, that at this point? I can agree with that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the main thing that happens is he's dueling Taylor. Taylor's obviously going to lose. Speed is a better racer than him. I kind of like that we get the impression that a lot of these racers who may have started passionate and good at their craft because of the sort of fixed nature of racing, they had lost a lot of their skill, right? They're, they hadn't been expected to race well for a long time because, you know, the outcomes were predetermined. And then, you know, with Speed in there, who really does, you know, have some awareness of what he's doing and, and he has all of this new sort of fresh aggression, he is able to sort of mix things up. And, and you know, I think that story and, and how that works is, is really cool. Um, I like that sort of underpinning. But of course, Cannibal Taylor ends up cheating. Uh, he uses a spear hook, which was uh, Spritel sees the spear hook being developed at Royalton when he's running around the second time speed goes back he stows away again they seemed very does. shocked like that by that like they were by the gun not mm -hmm. by any of the other wild none of the other atrocities measures. are fine but that and the gun are, are real bad uh so speed uses his jump jets to uh flip the car so that the cameras can see that there's a spear hook but then we get a, a nice emotional moment it kind of all comes back together uh matthew fox sans mask is uh, up watching in his booth. And after the Cannibal Taylor car fight, <laughs> uh, whatever you want to call it, um, his car is, is messed up and he has to restart it. And he, nobody knows if he actually knows how to do it. But earlier, you know, we, we kind of get a nice parallel reference from Rex talking about the car being alive and having to listen to it to know what it needs to, um, Racer X delivering the advice that, you know, he's, he's got to, uh, to, to know why he drives and what his motivations are. And, and he's able to restart the car and get it going. And, and here, I think this last sequence, as he tears out of this thing, everything accelerates, right? The car is just going so fast. He's blowing through everything. Here's where the, the, you know, Acura references really come through because the lights just get completely streaky and, you know, air, all the light is flying over his helmet. You can't really tell what's going on, but it almost doesn't matter. <laughs> no, like it's it's really more about the emotional weight of, of what Speed has been going through. And now he is going to demonstrate what racing really is. Because we get this really great speech earlier in the movie from Susan Sarandon. And I, I again, I think this is that sincere sort of uncompromising heart that they're really working hard to try and build into the film that really doesn't probably pay off in the way that it should, but it's it's certainly present. Where Susan Sarandon, as, as mom, racer, basically says, you know, like, what you do is is art, right? Like, you race in a way that is is like art. And when I watch it, you know, I, I'm... I'm my, take my breath away, right? And, and we get all of these nice little scenes. I mean, it's it's really almost hacky that we we have speed sort of reliving all of these moments, you know, all of the, the people and characters around him offering their advice as he's making these impossible moves 
to uh, go from literally the back of the pack to the front by the end. Um, and he's just ping-ponging around. It's almost it, it almost feels like pinball, really. Like he is just zigzagging around this track, knocking cars out of the way. It's it's phenomenal. It's really cool looking, and it's really cool from an emotional standpoint. Because the Wachowskis, you can feel, are they're working really hard. We even get a, a parallel shot. We go back to that 360 spin where he was uh, driving as a little kid with all the animated pieces around him and then we get you know segue back into speed in his current car um and it is you know it's just a nice it, it is a nice kind of uplifting end very straightforward he faces off against a couple of guys he's faced off before takes him out and and wins um and not just wins but he crosses the finish line with his tires <laughs> melting <laughs> his yokohama tires uh <laughs> Uh, melting because he's been driving uh, so fast, right? And and that's pretty much it. I mean, at, at the end of the day, this is a sports film, right? So, I mean, you've got to end with the big sports race. I mean, it's, it's, it's Karate Kid, right? Like, you know, Daniel Russo is going to kick Billy Zabka in the face and he's going to, you know, everybody's going to run down and give him a hug. Like, that's how this works. But the thing I liked about it is as Speed makes his final move to the finish line, which in the Speed Racer world, the, the checkered flag is not black and white, it's red and white, which I don't know if that's a racing thing. I, I don't know enough about racing to, to say if that's true or not. Um, but as he crosses the finish line, we go back to that kaleidoscopic swirl that brought us into the film in the first place. right? As he zooms across the line, that same red and white checkered flag you know, almost sort of shifting tunnel emerges from speed. Like, you know, he creates the finish line in a certain way uh, and crosses. So that's kind of where I felt like that. That's where they sold the parallel of, of the beginning of the film uh, as they, they bring us back to this very strange world. And so speed wins, obviously. And really, we, we then move on to the, the last couple of reveals. Speed gets to have... Uh, cold milk at the finish line because that's what they drink at the finish line here. I, I don't know if again, that's a, that's really, a racing tradition. Is that a racing thing? That, okay, that's the, uh, at the Indy Five Hundred. That's that's tradition. that's what they do. Okay, I will take your word for it because I don't know. But that's uh, so they get their cold milk. Uh, he finally gets to kiss Trixie, which that was been another kind of running gag in the movie, which my kids were constantly just like oh no and i'm like nope don't worry they're not gonna kiss here it's not a problem um but then he finally gets to kiss her at, at the finish line and and, and that hideous there. child shows up and almost ruins uh, that's right and then spridal is there and he's got the monkey and we're reminded that he's still there he's still <laughs> we're reminded that he still exists <laughs> um but the main thing that comes right here at the end and again matthew fox is just selling this he's he's on a turntable he's just spinning through the frame and he's he's emoting and he's feeling things and of course it's revealed that racer x is rex racer right rex racer staged his death and then with the help of inspector detector and a team of incredible doctors he got cosmetic surgery and he went from being that kid from friday night lights to being matthew fox um upgrade <clears throat> A uh, bit of bit of an upgrade. I'd love to go into um, surgery and come out looking like Matthew Fox. That would be awesome. Hell, hell yeah! I know my my wife would certainly appreciate that. <laughs> I don't think she would have a problem with that at all. Um, but it's nice. Inspector Detector says, "You know, hey, do you want to go be with them? Like, you know, we've we've made a huge 
we've made huge strides here. You know, we're going to be able to change the way the racing works. You know, maybe you could go back and be with your family now, but he says, no, I've, I've got to live with what I, with what I am. Uh, Sparky gets his drink of milk, you know, cause that was his kind of emotional moment and, and everything ends with a nice photo op. Right. And we get, you know, we get a couple of the, you know, fake magazine and newspaper covers showing that Royalton goes to jail and all this stuff. Uh, and then we get a nice little remodded version of the Speed Racer uh, theme, right? Which we've been hearing up until this point. Um, I, exactly. I, I can't say enough about uh, Michael Giacchino's score in this film. Uh, I think he is doing a lot of really cool stuff. In general, I like Giacchino's scores. I mean, pretty much across the board, I... Um, I love his Doctor Strange score. It's very strange. It's got a lot of sitar in it, but it's really cool. I actually really love his uh, rebooted 2009 Star Trek uh, sound uh, score, which he did right after this. Um, mostly because he establishes his own themes for that. And then at the end, we find out that all of those themes were written to dovetail perfectly into the original I've, series theme. I've watched a lot of little kind of mini documentaries about his um, scores, and he's quickly become one of my favorite composers. I'm, I usually get, I used to not really care much about his stuff, and, and now I actually get really excited when I see that he's, he's tackling a new score. Um, Usually he's kind of brought in as a closer. I've seen him sort of pick up a score. It is sometimes it's rare these days, but sometimes you'll still see a director sort of unhappy. Well, score is one of the last things that gets done on a film in the first place. Like you've got to have pretty solid picture lock before you can start actually laying down score. Like usually you'll have your your composer sort of like building themes based on little bits of the film as they know or based on script and, and you know storyboards that kind of stuff but uh, I've seen Giacchino he, he'll be brought in as sort of like a closer like I didn't like this score or the score wasn't working you come in and you you know you you do this thing and he works very quickly but he still never really seems to compromise his quality and, and I really like the score in Speed Racer I think it's it's very effective it's it's brass was, and, and, and in your face when it needs to be but then most of the time it's fine it was very suited to the visual style it was big it was it was loud it was like you said brassy and um i think the movie would have been poorer if it had a, a subtle soundtrack i'm kind of glad i'm also kind of glad that it stood out um this was around the time that movies started to get a little bit washed of their musical identity uh and he's one composer that doesn't do that yeah for sure um like doesn't i think do the temp track thing no no he's he's very original in his approach and um I, I one thing i really love about him he's he usually uses traditional drums um like he'll actually have kit drumming on his scores which you do not hear very often um you know, most orchestral scores, you're just going to have your standard sort of timpani and percussion sections, but he'll actually have like full kit drumming and it gives it kind of a Broadway feel a little bit. Like it's got a, like a live music feel. and I really enjoy it most of the time. And it, it definitely works for this. Um, it feels very much in, in keeping with the spirit of the you know, soundtrack, the original Speed Racer, which was, you know, kind of chintzy and, and 
fairly cheap for its time, but still kind of good. And he's sort of playing in that same world, but then bringing a lot of you know, new and, and sort of fresh sounds to it. But uh, very, ex- you know, a very good score. It's it's a listenable one, like one you can put on in the background and still kind of enjoy. It's not as good as Ratatouille, which is my favorite that he's ever <laughs> No, Ratat- yeah, Ratatouille's got a kick butt score. That is a really good. Uh, that's a really good set for sure. Um, you know, I think I would say he's done a surprising amount of video game work. Is is another thing I don't know if, if everybody knows about him. Um, a lot of the original Call of Duty games, he did the music for as well. Which, um, you know. Call of Duty now is kind of its own animal and, and certainly does its own thing. But those original Call of Duty games, they had awesome scores. Um, like I, I could probably, I'm not going to do it, but I can still hum the main theme music for the original Call of Duty like pretty that's, easily. I'm glad because that's um, the only one I would know. I, <laughs> I played the first, the first three games when they were just called Call of Duty. Yeah, just, just Call of subtitle. Duty, no subtitles. There was just a Call of Duty 1 through 3. <laughs> right. That's it. <laughs> and, and they were excellent, man. Like, they were real good. Um, yeah, it was Rogue One, a Star Wars story, where he replaced Alexander Desplat uh, kind of right at the end and did the score for Rogue One, which Rogue One actually has one of the better scores of these new wave of Star Trek films, or Star Wars films, not not the ones that John Williams scored That's entirely different world but um you know the the lesser star wars films the <laughs> the stories if you will uh, generally he's his uh, scores have been been quite good but in any case i, I could gush about Gina for a long time but uh it, it really works here and I, I think it does fit with the film but uh the other thing i guess of note is the the it's hard to praise the cinematographer in a film like this, not because they didn't do an incredible job. In this case, it was David Tattersall, uh, who at this point, I, I would say probably his biggest credits are he is the guy who was the cinema. You know, you said it felt like the Padres scene. David Tattersall did all the cinematography for the prequels. <laughs> um, it, is, it shows. <laughs> it shows. Uh, I, I imagine he got the job because... He is super, super familiar with blue and green screen filmmaking, right? He is super familiar with making movies where there is nothing. That's right. There's there's nothing there. It is just a dude in a a little, like, thing that looks like a car. And shall will our movie into existence. (laughs) And I I think that um, this film... I mean, people complained about the the look of the film a lot. You know, it's it's oversaturation, it's sort of bubbly color scheme, the 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 hyper frenetic nature of it. But this entire film basically would have had to been shot in tiny little one second chunks, and then stitched together after the fact. And the amount of planning and forethought required to grab all of those elements and have them all available when they put this thing together in the editing room, I cannot imagine the complexity of that enterprise because it would have had to have been absolutely out of this world 
in terms of difficulty. Um, you know, again, the, the pod race sequence feels a little bit the same, right? You've got all of these individual shots of speed looking to the left and turning his wheel. And you've got to stitch that together with another guy behind him who is, you know, sneering and then pressing the accelerator. Like you've just got all of these little pieces and, and it all has to work together. It all has to hang together. It all has to, to feel like it's existing in the same world at the same time. And, and the, for the most part, the film pulls it off, right? Whether you agree with the style or like the style, they make it work. And once they establish it, they stick to it. You know, I think this is a film, in terms of its editing and, and how it was built, will be studied at some point, right? Because it's just too unique. I mean, nobody does things like this. Yeah, whether or not you it know? was successful, it was different. Yeah, I and that's I guess that's one of the reasons why I kind of like it is that I I like movies that shoot for something unique that's never been attempted before and even if they don't hit even if they don't land 100%, I still absolutely will appreciate it and kind of love it for trying in the very first place. Because they don't have to try. Like, I mean, you can have a, a perfectly successful blockbuster film without any originality behind it. Uh, and, you know, and I don't like to, I don't want to pick on anybody because all filmmaking requires some level of you originality. You want to pick on Michael Bay? I know you do. <laughs> I mean, kind of. I mean, but even Michael Bay, he tries to infuse his movies with things that he finds interesting. You know, Michael the, Bay has made some good movies. He has. He really has. And and I don't like... I mean, honestly, I watched The Island not too long ago, and I'd never seen it. I just stayed away from it. I was like, it, uh, you know, Parts, parts the Clonus Horror. Parts the Clonus Horror. It's Parts <laughs> the Clonus Horror. I, mean, I, I was like, I saw Parts the Clonus Horror. I don't need to see The Island. Um, but I watched that movie, and, you know, I, that movie was also a sort of stunning failure. And it has all of the same hallmarks of Michael Bay film, right? It looks like Armageddon. has characters that feel just like Steve Buscemi's in there. You know, it's got all of their, your standard hallmark stuff. But you can still kind of feel Michael Bay trying to make, you know, like a real movie. Like a good movie. Yeah. And, and then he just kind of got crapped on for it. A hundred percent. And, you know, you... With Michael Bay, you can kind of feel him, you know, because the next movie he made was Transformers, and you can finally feel him be like, all right, I'll make this dumb robot movie. I don't care. In fact, I'll make this dumb robot movie, but I'm going to put a scene from the island in it because nobody saw the island, and they're not going to realize that I'm using the same footage, and then I'm just going to have a robot smash it. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen that? I have the the bank the, the bank truck that gets smashed is just yep. straight it's just straight a reused element from the island because nobody saw it and he knew nobody would care but uh you know that kind of stuff i like but you know i i think the wachowskis i think we're at the point now where i think hollywood and i think a lot of fans have looked at their work and said like the matrix is all they've done that's, that's of quality sad. And that makes me really sad because I don't think that's true. I think the Wachowskis are tr are truly visionary directors. I think they have done more to advance film technology and film technique than a lot of other directors, right? I, 
the problem has been is that their output refuses to be it refuses to be tamped down they right they refuse to sort of like stick to a single genre and and just work it they like to move around which i appreciate but they're not prolific enough like say a spielberg where you can try all this different stuff and then if things don't hit well it doesn't really matter right we're just moving on to the next one you know they're they're only making movies every three four or five years so i'm really anxious to see what happens with matrix uh one it's just lana on the matrix this time apparently lily is lily is not involved so i'm I'm a little worried about that because i feel like they work best as a team uh and and produce some incredible stuff as a team so i'm very interested to see what it looks like seems like lily is more interested in working on the television side of their production uh production arm now um but I, I don't know. I'm concerned. I, I just, I don't know what the future holds. Um, you know, there, there are films after Speed Racers. We mentioned uh, Cloud Atlas. Which I which adored. I, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in that camp too. Cloud Atlas is a great film. But I, I was destined to love Cloud Atlas as a film because I love Cloud Atlas as a book. Like yeah. Cloud Atlas, for me, is, is one of my top five reading experiences I think experiences they took a very time. unapproachable book and they made it a very approachable book. Very movie, approachable. But perhaps Absolutely. not approachable enough. Not enough. And that man, I mean, that seems like since the Matrix, that has been the the sort of Wachowski curse, is that it's just not approachable enough, right? It's right there, but people just aren't grabbing it. I mean, and even the Matrix sequels, you know, were diminishing returns. Reloaded was huge because the Matrix was huge. Everybody was gonna go see Reloaded. But Revolutions was like, whoa. I mean, and I was there opening weekend with Revolutions, and there was a guy who sat in front of us, and he basically just bitched about what Neo was doing the entire time, like out loud, just being like, oh, yeah. no, oh, no, no, oh, Neo, man. Like he just yelling at the screen because he was so angry. Was he the Colonel Sanders angry. comment guy? I, it might as well have been. I mean, it was just I like, remember dang. when that happened, but. Oh, yeah, that uh, that was a different, yeah, that was a different time, but I, I know here, I remember that moment too, but it just seems like they've they've always been right on that line where they've, they haven't been able to have that same success again. But I, I unequivocally, I love Speed Racer. I love watching it. I like watching it with my kids. I do think it's too long. I do think it's very easy to hate the visual style in it. I, I like what they're throwing down. I think it, it's interesting enough for me that I'm willing to engage with it. But it's just, it's got a real heart to it. There's a solid emotional foundation to it with Speed and his family, mostly anchored by Goodman and Sarandon, who are really doing good work. But it, it I think its greatest success is also its greatest failure because its great success is that it truly is a family film. There are elements and components of this movie that are designed to satisfy and appease every age group in your family. <clears throat> and it, it and I guess it you know you could probably complain that it all of those components maybe feel like they exist. It doesn't seamlessly blend. But so many family movies, I mean, you know, I've seen Trolls World Tour. That movie is garbage. Um, not because it's it's badly made, but because there's nothing in that movie for me. And right? that's it, sad because it, I loved Trolls. 
Trolls is great. The, the first Trolls was pretty good. Evil. No, like the whole entire concept of Trolls World Tour is just not good. They're trying to reunite the strings of the world. And each, each string is a different genre of music, which apparently there are only five of. And they're all trying to come back together again and be united in harmony. But maybe that's not the best thing. It's it's just it's flawed on every level, in my opinion. But but like so many movies, they don't blend that well. And then you get something from Pixar like Onward, which really has a lot of like significant family drama. Like it's it's about kids who lost a parent and then they get an opportunity to exactly. And then they get an opportunity to be with that parent again and they screw it up. And so the whole movie is them trying to correct that mistake so they could get just a couple of minutes with that parent again which is very heartfelt and very sad and so that had a lot of drama that as a parent i engaged with but because it had all of that drama it didn't have a whole lot for my kids to really get into right they didn't have some of the slapstick humor and it it, and if it did it felt kind of out of place and so that balance is really really hard to strike and for all of speed racers flaws i feel like it strikes a pretty solid family film balance the races are interesting enough and the family dynamics are interesting enough that i as a you know unfortunate 40 year old man can still enjoy it but it's also bubblegum enough and over the top enough that my kids can enjoy it too and honestly if it was 20 minutes shorter and trimmed down in the middle and and tightened up a little bit more i think it would be damn near perfect like very very close um and, but even still, I, I really enjoy it. I, I watch it pretty regularly, if I'm being honest. <laughs> all right. Well, um, I guess let's let's move into the final phase. We've kind of hit all levels uh, as a part of our deep dive. But so, so what is our one thing, right? What's uh, What could have saved this from being one of, at this point, the most colossal disasters in cinema history in terms of finances? What could have changed it? Easily cutting out a half an hour. This was 135 minutes. It should have been 105 minutes. Um, And you can easily just trim it without losing much of the story because just some sequences and shots were just overly long. Um, You... You lose anybody's attention in an action sequence that just keeps going like the Casa Cristo race does. Right. Um, and for me, that's the weakest part in the film. That's where I, I struggled to maintain interest because that's also where the story gets more complex. So it, it almost felt like a bad move to make it visually overwhelming and the most twisty part of the plot because you kind of overlook some of those details because you're being bombarded with all of that sensory information so shorter definitely um but possibly also a different lead actor (laughs) or just someone who feels a bit more magnetic because the thing is the movie's called speed racer (laughs) Mm-hmm. And I wanted Speed Racer to be the most electrifying character in the film, and he was just kind of okay. Um, he's he's very easily overshadowed by other other figures and characters in the film, most notably Racer X for yeah. me. Like like 
in any scene where it is both speed and racer X racer X is the more interesting component of the scene. And uh, that's okay, but speed is the lead of the film and he should be able to hang uh, with those supporting characters. And it doesn't always happen. Yeah. I think you're dead right there. Um, I'm pretty close uh, on that. I think uh, running time is certainly a factor. Um, the other piece and again, this doesn't really bother me uh, when I watch it, but I've seen it enough times now that I, I don't really get as overwhelmed as I was at one time. But I think a lot of it has to do with, since the action is so divorced from reality, right? And it completely is. Um, you know, these cars are flipping and hopping and bouncing into each other in ways that, you know, if, if you want some sense of a physical reality in the world, you're not going to find it in this movie in any of those sequences. And so for me, I think all of the races need to be tightened up, you know, both in terms of runtime, but also in terms of camera, right? I think the camera moves in this are so fast and so artificial that it, it's sort of like, it's sort of like watching a mid two thousands, uh, martial arts film, right? Where everything's chopped up, you know, we're getting, you know, it's, it's the scene in Taken 3 of Liam Neeson jumping over a fence and it's like 17 cuts <laughs> right, where it's like jump to the fence, cut one, hit the fence, cut two, climb the fence slightly, cut three. You know, it's just, it's, it's all jumping over, over the, the place, fence, but from a Dutch angle, from a Dutch <laughs> angle, you know, cut seven. And, and it was a, it was a real common thing at the time. And I think the Wachowskis contributed to it. I think they helped to establish it because, a lot of their cutting technique in the original Matrix was to get around limitations of their actors, right? Keanu Reeves very famously had had a spinal fusion right before starting the Matrix, so he actually had extremely limited mobility. And, um, you know, so they were, were cutting around his limitations. So a lot of the times when they were cutting on his movements, it was because he couldn't complete the movement. Um, a similar thing happened with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Michelle Yeoh uh, tore her ACL in like the first fight scene of the movie. And then she had to spend the rest of the movie, all of her stuff where it's, it's actually her fighting had to be shot super close because she couldn't move. She was literally rooted in one place. She couldn't move her legs. Um, you know, so there, you know, but Ang Lee, he figured out around that by, you know, basically pulling the camera so far away from the characters and shooting in the wide that, you know, you just didn't notice. But I think this film needed to slow down in the race sequences because what's happening in the race sequences is exciting and cool and, and visually stunning because you've just never seen a, a physical object move like that. But it's often happening so quickly that it becomes very difficult to track, especially in those like really color saturated sequences. Um, so I think that's number one, right? Just evaluating what the camera is doing during those sequences, slowing it down. Mad Max Fury Road, again, is a perfect example of this. The camera in Mad Max Fury Road is always moving, but it's never moving in a way that is counter to a way that you would expect it to move in physical space. And this one is, right? Like, it is it is a camera that you, you can tell is in a computer because it's moving in ways that a camera could never move. Um, the, the Battlestar Galactica remake really brought this into stark relief for me. I love the the cinema the space cinematography in the Battlestar Galactica remake because 
all of the camera work in that is predicated on the fact that it's a real camera that could have been floating out there in space filming the sequence. So it has to move like a real camera. And it grounds that action so brilliantly that I think it sells what are, to be honest, middling special effects. Like the special effects in, in the BSG remake are not 100% awesome. They're good, but they're not incredible. But the camera work makes it feel a lot better. And this movie, I think, could have benefited from that a little bit. So that's number one. Uh, the you know I know we're getting away from the one thing, but another thing that I think it could have really benefited from, and, and you said it almost immediately, is just a slight color grading. I know what they're doing, and they're trying to make it look like that anime. And I and it, I it reminded me of the first pictures that I ever edited with Adobe Photoshop. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 very much like my first color palette. And as much as I love it, and I think there is room in the film to have those bursts of color. Right, like Speed Racer's traditional outfit, the blue and the white. Absolutely, we need that stuff. We want that stuff. The bright yellow of Racer X's car, the number nine. Absolutely. But then sort of allow those to be the pop-out spots and then bring everything else down just a little bit so they get yeah. to be the pop-out spots. Right, so when we see those iconic colors, we go like, yeah, I know that. That looks cool. But when everything is blown out that far... It gets, it's hard you to lose, know what matters. You lose yeah. a lot of those, those moments and those opportunities where you could have really utilized it as a style. It doesn't feel very well used, um, speaking specifically to the color. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I think it's... I understand it being too much. Like I said, I've, I've grown to love it. I, I think... It's a bold choice. I think it's a, a fantastic, from a directorial standpoint, from a film standpoint, I'm like, I completely understand. And I, you know, it's, it's sort of like when we were talking about Tron, right? Like Tron plants a flag for its color palette and then it just runs with it to the end and it yeah. benefits it. But it's also a much more limited color palette and the bright colors are used as accent, not as total like sensory overload so you, you buy it a little bit more i guess but i you know I, I think the film might be interesting to take and and just color time down just a little bit for everything else that is not what we're supposed to care about because color as we know in art is about drawing attention it's about emphasis right you know it's it's schindler's list right the girl with the red coat right you're going to pay attention to the girl with the red coat because everything else is desaturated you know, and so I think we, as film goers, we come to expect that with color. And when we're bombarded with color, it becomes very, very easy for us to lose sight of what the color even means. Like, why does it even matter? Yeah. And so, you know, I think there's certainly room here for that to get played with a bit. Again, I, I'm okay with it as a viewer of the film now. I kind of love it because we just, it can, we don't see things like this very often. But for, if you're really trying to, to get that audience on board, it's it's too much yeah. for sure so um so let's what's our final recommendation i think we've been a bit more mixed on speed racer than we have been on some of our previous films um i'm pretty high on it but where would you put this um would you recommend it and and what's your your failure piece score um i went into this um having like no expectations um cuz i didn't watch it when it came out i knew people hated it I assumed 
that it probably wasn't a movie for me. Um, you know, I, I don't have children. I I watch family movies because I enjoy them personally. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I have... I have a lot of experience watching a lot of family films. Um, but what prepared me to absorb this film now was having just rewatched Tron Legacy for the eight millionth time. Mm -hmm. And I realized it's unfair to sing the praises of a film that is so absolutely soaked in a very distinct visual style and then not give this movie a fair shake. So I did. And I enjoyed it. I I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. Um, I I thought because you had said that it was more of a family oriented film, I thought, well, maybe that's why it just has never appealed to me. Um, but I actually did enjoy it. I thought it was silly. I I almost wish that it had embraced its silliness a little bit more. And I'm I think I'm gonna put it like smack in the middle at seventy five. I enjoyed it. It's a, a well-rounded family film. It's got a lot of action in it. I would just recommend watching it on a television where you can put it in a slightly less shocking color mode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's that's a really good way to put it. Um, I, I'm very high on this film. I, I did see it when it came out. I, I saw it in the theater. It was at the... The, the city where we lived at the time, there was the good theater and it was the bad theater. The bad theater had had Speed Racer, so we went there to see it. And I'll be honest, I walked out of the theater saying, like, man, that is going to do really well. Like, I seriously <laughs> thought that that was going to be... Because I left, you know, sort of ebullient because that final race sequence is, is very uplifting. You know, Speed just has this moment of realization. He becomes the, the racer that he's always dreamed of being. He wins the Grand Prix. You know, like, it, it's a very, like... A lot of times I think a movie really depends upon that sort of final feeling that you leave with, right? That final impression as you walk away from it is what's going to determine, it. in a lot of ways, it's word of mouth, you know, how are you going to talk to people about it? And so I left pretty up. I was like, man, that was great. And I, I really thought that it was going to be successful. And then, of course, the exact opposite happened. And I think so, that really did surprise me. <laughs> yeah. It, I thought it, it would be much more popular. Yeah, no, I, I assumed that it would do well because it, it was pretty slam dunk, right? There wasn't a ton of family stuff out that summer that I remember. You know, there was a, a couple of things, but nothing huge. And I, I really felt like it was going to do okay. And then it just flopped hard. So, I, you know, it was, it was a, a little strange for me. But, you know, I, I this is a pretty unequivocal recommendation for me. I'll, I'll be honest. Like... Um, especially if you've got kids, if, um, you know, there's going to be multiple age groups watching this film and, and actually wanting to pay attention to it, you know, not just like staring at their phones while something is on. Um, I think there's a lot to grab onto here. There is literally something for every age level of the family that comes through it consistently. Um, you know, it's not like you just get little drops uh, you know, sometimes like the early Pixar movies, like you just get these little adult jokes like mixed in, you know, well, I won't say Pixar, let's say DreamWorks, right? Like early DreamWorks movies where it's like you've got goofy stuff, goofy stuff, goofy stuff, joke for adults, goofy stuff, goofy stuff, goofy joke for adults, you know, like that very sort of, Tunes formula. sure, I mean, the very typical sort of animated fair pattern. 
Um, this movie is much more consistent in its delivery of something to keep you interested at various age levels, which I think is a very calculated choice. I also think that it is an editing masterpiece, like absolutely phenomenal editing work. Um, the fact that it did not win all kinds of crazy awards for it doesn't, doesn't even make sense to me because it is truly just next level stuff. Um, so I'm going to be a bit higher. I'm going to go 90 on this one. Like I just, I really, I'm not going to be one of those people who are now advocating for this as being some kind of like hidden masterpiece. One, it's, it's not hidden at all. No. Uh, this, this movie was marketed to the high heavens in 2008. I, I would say it's probably been a bit forgotten now, right? It's, it's not hard. It's not easy to find. Uh, I will say that it's not streaming anywhere. And the Blu-ray is, is, I don't think it's out of print, but you, you're not just going to find it in Walmart. Um, so it may be somewhat difficult to acquire uh, without paying for it significantly, but um, it's it's worth a watch. Like it's it's worth seeking out if you've never seen it because and I I'm, think there is a lot here. I'm going to take it a, a step further. I I am not like a, a regular anime watcher. I don't I don't have series that I follow. I don't, I don't read manga. I just, just never have. Um, of course I love things like Akira and, uh, uh, Ninja Scroll and I like anime classics. Um, but I have to say, if you like anime, you should see this because yeah. it really is somebody attempting to make anime into a film with real people in it. Um, right. You know, we've seen other attempts at that, like the Netflix Death Note movie, which I also enjoyed. See, now that's reasons. that's one I need to watch. <laughs> I for sure. I would love to talk about it because I I enjoyed it, um, and it's always fun to see how different filmmakers approach something that is so outside of the American cinema understanding. Like anime is just so different. Um, you know, the emotion and the action and the intensity is way off from any kind of traditional animation that we've seen. So it was neat to have somebody take a crack at it. Um, it's just a shame that nobody, nobody seemed to be down with it in 2008. Right. I mean, and, and, but I, you're absolutely right. Like if you like anime or if you have even just a passing, you know, appreciation for the original Speed Racer anime, there is tons of stuff. I mean, like that red and yellow checkerboard at the beginning, yeah. like that's how Speed Racer opened. Like that's what it looked like. And you can tell they they put together some kind of board of shots from that movie and that's where they pulled their color palette for this movie from. And, you know, I, I it is the, it is easily the closest, the closest anime come to life that I've ever seen. Like I easily easily uh the death note one on netflix even though you know people don't care for that movie very much apparently it's got some close things too but it's a remarkably difficult thing to do and the fact that the wachowskis pulled it off as well as they did i think is an accomplishment but you know i i have a pretty um you know high opinion of this movie i, I think it's it's well worth somebody's time uh, if they are at all interested. And, and I am a fan of anime. I, I watch anime with my daughter. She is, is very much into anime at this point in her life. 
and I've introduced her to things. I'm, I'm much more into like the mecha stuff. I like Gundam. I like Robotech, you know, those kind of things. Voltron. Um, I mean, I grew up watching what you watched. So if you watched it, then I watched it. (laughs) You know, those are all things that I'm, I'm very into and and I, I still enjoy to this day. And, um, it really is a kind of interesting apart from just seeing a, a kind of American take on, on something like that. It's also kind of intriguing, but um, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Like I said, I, I think this movie's, if somebody's never seen it, I think they would enjoy it quite a bit. But all right. So any other final thoughts? Um, Hiroyuki Sonata needed to be used more. Yeah. Uh, it's our another movie with Hiroyuki Sonata. It won't be the last. Uh, here he plays a minor role as one of the guys trying to work with Royalton to, um, to, to sort of I get so excited when I see his face and just I saw his face and I got excited and then he didn't do very much and I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, he is in the movie and I love seeing him. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to see him. And this movie's got a really solid, you know, cast kind of across the board. Um, Rain, uh, a South Korean actor, uh, plays Togokan, and he's he's very good. Um, but uh, yeah, in in general, I think, um, you know, the film works on a lot of levels, and I, I think it's got a lot to enjoy. It's not perfect. And it very well may be something that makes you feel physically ill as you're watching it. Um, but if you can make it through it, I, I think there's quite a bit there. Uh, so I did just check Amazon Prime, and actually Speed Racer is streaming on Amazon Prime at the moment. Uh, so as of the time of this recording. So that actually does make it a little bit more accessible. But um, And you can still find the Blu-ray for a decent price, which I would recommend. This actually is one of... Uh, this is a, a film that I, I think benefits from having physical media as opposed to streaming because some of the, the the colors in this movie, uh, I imagine they're going to block pretty hard in, in streaming if uh, that's the only option you have. But in any case, I, I would suggest seeking it out if you get the chance. Well, all right. Well, where can we find you on the internet? I am usually on Twitter at Baskinator. That's where you can find very nice. Uh, you can find me at T Baskin, also on the Twitter. And then if you are so inclined, you can find us at Fpeace uh, Theater on Twitter and FillYourPiece at gmail.com if you have any inquiries. Um, all right, so we're going to let you go for this week. Thanks for listening to our discussion of Speed Racer, a film that, well, not perfect. We both recommend it definitely sort of is trending into that failure piece territory of failure, but maybe worth your time. Uh, Because remember, if you're loved, you're not a failure. And we love you. See you next time.